and welcome to episode 456 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. My name's Matt, and in this week's show we look at a pilot's frankly astounding save at an air show in Rio Negro. Everyone's favourite low-cost airline dust off the checkbook with a huge order, and a propeller strap penetrates the cabin of a Link Airways Saab 340B mid flight. In the military, Armando talks amphibious special ops, B-17 worthiness, or airworthiness I should say, and the Navy Museum at, uh, I want to say Pensacola, hopefully I've said that correctly. Have I said that correctly, Armando? <laughs> I'll yep, you got it. Pensacola. Very good. Press the left button, not the right I'll, button. I'll, very good. Oh no, don't press the right button. We know what happens if you press the right button. <laughs> it all goes horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, oh, it's, uh, John has let me know that I've got it correct as well. It's 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 all it's all coming up roses. Uh, so it's a very different program to the usual. I'm afraid to say everybody's basically on holiday or or involved in picking up people from holiday uh, who are on holiday, uh, and I'm just back from holiday, so I've sort of more or less forgotten how all of this works. So it could be quite an interesting show. Could be one to certainly uh, chalk up to uh, like experience, let's put it that way. So in desperation to uh, get together a show, we've had to call in what I can only describe as the greatest super sub that there is of all of them. If you need somebody to talk about aviation, there is no one better than the main man himself. It gives me great pleasure to welcome the legend that is Captain Jeff. Hi there. Although I'm not sure that uh, des- in desperation, <laughs> no, desperation I'm now is not the correct a one. host on <laughs> your show. Thank you very much. Well, no, you're so busy. I hate troubling people who are so very, very busy. And uh, you know, your your podcast is the longest podcast in the entire world uh, from start so. to finish. So, <laughs> I think that's now <laughs> the new official title. Uh, well, I have to say that yours has kind of. You know, grown in in yes. length. Uh, that's what she said. Yes, indeed, quite family show and all that. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely, still no royalties on that, by the way. Just saying. Uh, that, <laughs> but yes, uh, welcome a lot. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff. Great one, to be here. Uh, like literally, Thank you for inviting me. Uh, more than welcome. Literally yesterday, I'm thinking, no, I am really going to be doing a show on my own. This could be fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we are a couple of people missing, as you probably noticed. Uh, we'll start uh, with Nev. He has given his apologies and sends us. A a little update from Portugal. And um, so my apologies for not doing it, us not doing a show last week. It was one of those times where just everybody is just, was not available. Um, and that's just one of those things, unfortunately. We've got jobs to do as well. So, But uh, here I am down in the, the Algarve, beautiful part of the uh, of Portugal. And um, it's a bit of a, an idea of uh, where we are. So for those uh, listening on the audio podcast here, Nev is showing us some wonderful pictures and video of the Algarve where he's staying with Mrs. Nev having a well-deserved rest and break. I've just come back from a, a lovely week actually in Gran Canaria as well, so uh, it's, uh, it's not, as, not as posh as where he is, it has to be said. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, mine was basically dodgy, dodgy swimming pools and, and even dodgier bars, but, uh, that, you know, such is my want. 
So, yes, yeah, so Nev is in the Algarve, bless him, having a lovely, lovely time. Uh, and uh, hopefully he'll be back very, very soon uh, as well. Now, you may have noticed also that we're someone else missing uh, today. Uh, now, there's a very good reason for that. And uh, <laughs> the good reason uh, is about to become very apparent. We cross live now over to Tom Williams in the BBC Lookie studio for the very latest news. week of extraordinary weather hasn't it across the region flash flooding one minute bright sunshine the next but in terms of dramatic pictures this next story really takes the biscuit a tornado wreaking havoc at a yard in Suffolk sending workers running for cover this from Mike Liggins they come before the storm in the yard of storage company filing fortress Stuart and Carlos were loading a lorry with furniture for a new house when a tornado hit. Stuart fell over and furniture went everywhere. It was about half past 12 yesterday. Luckily, no one was hurt, but both men say it was frightening. Today, Stuart and Carlos were delivering what was left of the furniture to the customer's house near Norwich. I've never seen it in, in my lifetime. Um, yeah, quite, quite scary how the wind just changed because um, people in the neighbouring um, industrial units um, they didn't hear a thing you leap forward and land on your on your knee Stuart and Carlos think there was about five thousand pounds worth of damage which hopefully will be covered by insurance it was a, a crazy 30 seconds I remember seeing you know a mattress a king-size full-size king-size mattress rotating up into the sky along with various other pieces of sort of furniture and small furniture and a, and a whole um, outside seating chair just literally flew round, struck my vehicle and carry it continued off into uh, into the distance now what tends to happen when the sea breeze comes in is you get a little bit of spin in the low levels that you wouldn't notice normally but when you get a shower or storm above that it pulls that spin up into the cloud base and when that happens you can get a funnel cloud and we saw plenty of those on thursday and if that touches the ground that's when you get a tornado and that's what we see in the footage in, in north suffolk there are only 30 tornadoes in the UK every year, so they are relatively rare. Unlucky, it hit Stuart and Carlos's yard, but lucky for them to escape relatively unscathed from the Horham tornado. Mike Liggins, BBC Look East. There we go. So, yes, yeah, so off the back of that, basically, he's now got a week of rest and recuperation uh, with the legend that is Armando. I mean, uh, you guys must be laughing at this, of course, because, I mean, tornadoes are a huge thing uh, where, where you are. You, they're almost like a, like a monthly uh, thing, aren't they, where you are? But huge news here in the UK, especially in our little part of East Anglia. And ironically, uh, there appeared to be no other tornadoes in the area. It literally hit the yard where Stuart and Carlos were. So... Uh, uh, yes, uh, for, probably very amusing for your, you, you guys going, aw, that's sweet. <laughs> I would imagine that the folks that they delivered the furniture to said, what, it, what did you do? It looks like this has been through a tornado. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, having said that, though, I mean, it's the best excuse video you could ever possibly have, isn't it? As they've got literally a video of their stuff hurtling their, its that's way why through. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, never mind. Never mind. All yeah, part of the fun. You, you know, I'm just glad that they're safe because no matter. Yeah, sure, sure. We 
we have weekly tornadoes and maybe even daily tornadoes during the summertime. I, Jeff, I think this year has been exceptionally bad for tornadoes, really bad yeah, tornadoes. But I'll bet you if you're Carlos and Stuart sitting in that yard and you hear it coming and you feel it, I'll bet you it's uh, just as serious as if you were in the middle of a tornado in Oklahoma when, you, when you're getting knocked off your feet. So uh, pretty amazing. I, I mean, if you, if you go back and you guys can, can just Google that tornado, um, the Horam tornado, but it, I mean, it lifted a couch straight up into the air, was twirling in the air. There was a couple uh, bed mattresses that Carlos said were just missing. They just ended up in a field somewhere. So it it was not uh, not a little affair, I would I would say. No, indeed, it, it was. Well, as I say quite big for us anyway. It's uh, it's quite the uh, quite the event, as I say, and, and that's the thing. It literally appeared from nowhere. That's the thing. It was just like one minute it was fine, and as Carlos said in the video, like within thirty seconds it was quite terrifying. But I mean, we won't go on because I dare say he will uh, he will tell us all about it when he returns. But yeah, I mean, it's quite the sort of shocking thing. I mean, that's not light furniture that's flying around in the air there, is it? Let's be honest. So uh, I'm I'm a little disappointed that it didn't pick up Carlos. <laughs> spinning away (laughs) well it did pick up Stuart I think knocked him over so uh, yeah absolutely (laughs) quite quite the event that's how he would have gotten to the states this week is just uh, like NTM NTM it's a twister it's a twister and he would have just ended up in Kansas indeed uh, there's no place like home there's no place like home (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely Uh, so as always now that we've done our introductions and stuff I will just sort of say thank you to everybody who has joined us make sure if you do want to see what we look like on YouTube search YouTube for Plain Talking UK you can hit the subscribe button and (laughs) they can't see you Jeff it's all right, they're looking at me at the moment. And he's pulling faces, honestly. Uh, and hit the bell icon, uh, which is right next to it, to be notified when we're live and recording new episodes. We'd love to have you along in the chat room as well. Thank you, of course, always to the wonderful people who download the podcast as an audio podcast as well. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do half the things that we're able to do, thanks to our wonderful and loyal listeners. Now, uh, we've got uh, a, a little video that we're going to start off with first before we go into uh, our commercial news nev and uh, carlos uh, as you may know were over in edinburgh a-, a while back and uh, they were having a lovely chat and a nose round at the wonderful concord that's based there well you join us on an aircraft which it's safe to say after the last 10 minutes of setting up the camera uh, is, is, is not as roomy as some of the aircraft that we've featured on the show in the past we are on board Concorde here at the museum and uh, Nev I mean you've obviously flown Concorde haven't you so um, what's it like being being on on a BA I will just point out a BA Concorde well this is Alpha Alpha now I've never flown on this one I flew on Alpha Bravo which is the one that's based at Heathrow but what I had forgotten uh, is how compact the cabin is and I've filmed on a lot of aircraft now and actually just trying to set up the camera to get a decent shot of the two of us uh, in this aircraft has been challenging certainly but uh, we're at we're halfway back here uh, because you know, Concorde's only one class which is Concorde class that's 100 passengers basically split into two two separate cabins uh, but it's a two by two configuration and it's just as well that the flight was only three and a half hours or whatever it was because uh, much more than that would be challenging and we're just uh, looking at the loos and, and some of the other amenities uh, it's <laughs> yeah it, there's not a lot of room but then it's a very thin 
aerodynamic aircraft for Mac 2 operation. So yeah, that's certainly uh, is. That's what it is. Yeah. I couldn't help noticing Nev when we were walking through the aircraft just now that um, you know although it is a tight space, it's, you know the, the toilets are very small. There's still quite a lot of legroom. Mm. I'm quite impressed with the amount of legroom and the seats here on board the aircraft. Um, slight lack of one thing though, Nev. IFE. Yes. Well, they would say that because uh, with the short flight time, you, you don't really need it, perhaps. But then why would you need IFE when you can look out those rather small windows yeah. at uh, that curvature of the earth when you're up there? And that's the, the biggest thing. You know, if you look at the newer aircraft, which have, uh, uh, which have got much larger windows, so the 787 and the A350, and you compare them to Concorde windows, I mean, they have to be small uh, in case of a depressurization up at 60,000 feet because they need to get the aircraft down to a breathable level for the passengers and with larger windows the air would have just escaped extremely quickly so uh, that's the main reason why the windows are so small that said as small as this cabin is it, the, there is an air of luxury to it and the way this aircraft particularly has been preserved is phenomenal it is extremely well looked after isn't it yeah i was just commenting to nev when we were setting up here how very very tidy this aircraft you know well well presented and still in keeping with how the aircraft left BA all those years ago but Nev I want to ask you a question mm. cast your mind back to when you flew on this aircraft whereabouts did you sit I think it was 10 Alpha was where I was so I, I did get a window seat my biggest regret still is that I don't remember enough about it all because I was I was quite young yeah. I, I, and I I did you know, experienced the incredible acceleration on takeoff, but I just thought that was normal for any kind of aircraft. The next time I flew was on a Monarch 737 out of Luton to go to Parma, and uh, the experience was not as exciting and a bit more disappointing. Um, but of course, the Concorde was not just about being the time machine that it was, you know, the ability to save people time, it was the luxurious uh, meals, drink service everything and the way that the crew were specifically trained for this aircraft obviously the flight deck crew but also the cabin crew as well uh, the service would have been second to none it's so nice uh, that we've got you know one or two of these aircraft still still around uh, and able to uh, for us to go on to i say this particular one alpha alpha is a i think one of the best examples we've got uh, in the uk so if you're uh, would like to come up to east fortunes that's the east coast uh, of, of Scotland uh, just before you get to Edinburgh absolutely very worthwhile yeah and it's uh, nice as well Nev that while we're up here I don't know whether they'll be able to hear that with the BA music playing in the background yes. there yeah very good yeah but no it's great to be on board the aircraft great to see another Concorde obviously we've all visited the one at uh, Duxford mm. but it's safe to say this this particular one as Nev was saying this was brought straight into the hangar here um, for you know to, to be looked after and it, it shows because the aircraft as we said it is in very 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 good order yeah. and uh, as a visitor to the museum it's worth pointing out as well you can walk on board look at the uh, interior here and you can also see the flight deck as well through uh, through the uh, window there yes they've um, allowed us to come on board the aircraft so we can actually show you we're showing you now you know the, the, the flight deck itself and it, of course when you see pictures of it, often it's taken with a wide angle lens, but when you look at it close up, again, because it's a very narrow end of the aircraft, clearly, 
for the three flight deck crew there, there's not a lot of room, not really. Of room. Um, so, but absolutely fascinating to see it. No, big thanks to the museum uh, for letting us uh, jump on board and do this filming. It's been yeah. been a real, real great experience. So, uh, well, Nev, nostalgia over. We better get on with some more. Uh, yes, we will. Aviation viewing. See you now. <laughs> love that there is something really unique about the concord isn't it that you know it's like uh, because and i think a lot of it is because there is none of the sort of like there is no supersonic replacement if you see what i mean and so people have got this like um sort of i mean it was probably never really was as comfortable as everybody seems to make out or, or like especially in comparison to aviation these days but there's such a like a as you as, as they said in the clip there's such nostalgia uh, attached to that aircraft Yep. Jeff, did you ever get a chance to even go in a Concord? Uh, not while they were still actively flying, but uh, Nev actually uh, took me to uh, the Brooklands uh, Museum yeah. and uh, oh, got yeah. to go into that one. And uh, yeah, it was yeah. nice. Got a little. I've only ever that... been on the one at uh, Duxford, the test one. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I've only been in that one. As I say, of course, that was that's a very different sort of setup. It does have seats in it because it wasn't it wasn't ever a passenger variant, was it? It was uh, literally used for for measuring things like icing up and stuff like that, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed. Right. Well, I think it's time then that uh, we uh, get on with a bit of the old commercial news. So, if everybody's ready, we'll go, shall we? Let's do it. Ready. So uh, the first story uh, this week is... Well, uh, frankly, a rather astounding one. Uh, the headline is Pilot's Miraculous Save After Hitting the Ground While Performing a Stunt Just Yards from Spectators. Now, there's a, a rather shocking video that I will share with you after I've read the story. Uh, the pilot escaped safely and landed with a destroyed right wingtip, which is hardly a surprise when you see the video footage. A pilot saved himself from crashing his plane while brazenly performing a stunt in front of spectators. The pilot, who was was flying a Vans RV-7A aircraft during the Allen Aero Club in, uh, Aero Club in Rio Negro. It came too close to the ground as the plane's right tip shaved the landing. Uh, the, according to the Aviation Safety Network, the pilot escaped safely and landed with a destroyed right wingtip. Damage to the aircraft didn't go unnoticed by the authorities with the Argentinian Transportation and Safety Board launching an investigation into the mishap we were in front uh, we were in front and a piece of plastic from the plane flew at us and it continued as if nothing had happened one of the spectators told aviation 24 uh, so it's quite a short story I'm just gonna uh, let me just find this video clip 
for you because it is uh, something of uh, well, it's it, astounding, frankly. Uh, it's only eight seconds long, but in all you need to know is in this video clip here. So it's sort of flying sideways. Basically, the right tip is literally dragging along in the dirt and as I say frankly miraculous that he didn't lose total control now I'm watching the the zoom call here and Armando is literally shaking his head in I assume is like almost horror uh, <laughs> anything to say uh, on this <laughs> I'll go first uh what a dumb dumb <laughs> that's it no it's seriously this is so it, the fact that he was flying an rv7a uh, it's not a particular stunt plane, which tells me it's not a professional stunt pilot, professionally trained stunt pilot or anything. This was uh, probably one of the dumbest moves that uh, I've seen in a long time of a pilot doing something and then getting away with it. So um, somebody in the show notes put, I think it was luck more than judgment. Uh, I agree with that. I think it was luck more than judgment that saved this pilot. The RV-7A is a metal airplane. It's got a metal spar that goes through it. It's made out of metal. The wingtips are made out of fiberglass. Um, so that is probably the fact that the only thing that saved him was the fact that the, the wing was dragging on the ground and it, and it shaved it all down. I did see some pictures from the, the wingtip afterwards. But this is an, an, an untrained pilot showboating way too close to the crowds, mm. way too low to the ground. Uh, I'll bet you this was... I would venture to say this was an unsanctioned event and uh, not a lot of rules put in place. This is, this is right up there with that, that guy in the Cessna twin that forgot to put the gear down. Jeff, did you see this video? Forgot to put the gear down, uh, comes down the runway, strikes the propellers, both propellers, but puts the power in and goes around. And I, and, and I literally went around with the propeller blades hitting the ground and everybody on the video says, well, you're about to see your first airplane crash. Uh, to the people around them. This was just just a silly, silly move by this individual. Um, I don't know who they are, but I'm going to go ahead and solidly put them into that category. Don't do this at home, folks. <laughs> Not recommended. No, indeed. Yeah. And, and this, this is the thing that scares me about it as well, is like when you look at that video, actually, and you realize how damn close he was to the, I, I, I say he, I think it was a he, any, not that that really matters, uh, we'll say idiot, that'll probably cover it all, um, it was how close they were to the spectators. I mean, if that had flipped the wrong way round, or, mm -hmm. you know, if it had come the other way, I mean, all sorts of uh, unthinkable scenarios were moments away uh, from that. And I mean, there is a reason why, as you say, like the sanctioned air shows, you know, they have to be done at height and they have to be done a certain uh, certain distance away from from the crowds and things like that as you say and it's very much I think it was Nick that was saying in the chat room there it's very much you know luck rather than judgment and it's you know it's a very lucky pilot that something more catastrophic didn't occur I've never heard of the term shaved the landing the right wing <laughs> shaved the landing and I don't think he was attempting a landing here no. I think he was just doing a fly past and thought it'd be really cool to bank it up a little bit and uh, not considering geometry and physics and all that. And I think that uh, uh, Armando's absolutely right, and you as well, Matt, that th it's amazing that this didn't result in a horrible tragedy, not absolutely. only to the pilot flying the airplane, but the crowd that was very, very close. Yeah. Indeed, you know, and then these these propellers, as we'll see later on uh, in the, the, the news here, are, are, are very powerful things and can do an awful lot of 
of damage. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Very lucky people all round, I think. Uh, that's the, the, the long and the short of it. Now, Jeff, uh, it's uh, everybody's favourite low-cost carrier has broken out the checkbook and written some pretty huge checks, it has to be said. <laughs> Now, I thought that you're the one that always reads the Ryanair. Yes, stuff. I know, but if, because I had to do the lead story, it's, 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 oh, okay. it's, it's, a, it's a logistics thing. Sorry about that. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, Irishtimes.com. This is where that's this is from. Uh, Ryanair orders 300 new Boeing 737 MAX 10 jets worth more than some kind of a weird symbol 36BN. I'm not sure what that means. Oh, I, wait, 36 billion euros. <laughs> yeah, Did I get it right? That's correct. Yes, very good. <laughs> okay. Uh, in a move set to impact the aviation industry, Ryanair, the Irish airline behemoth, uh, confirmed on Tuesday that it has signed a significant deal with U.S. aircraft manufacturer Boeing. The deal involves firm orders for 150 of the MAX 10s, the largest model in Boeing's range, with the possibility of an additional 150 units for delivery between 2027 and 2033. These deliveries are set to start two years after the fulfillment of the last of Ryanair's current orders. The deal is estimated to exceed $40 billion based on the list prices for the jets, uh, even though they said in the head headline, 36 Six billion. billion. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, wait, 40 billion U.S. That's the ah, difference. Ah, yes, of course, yeah. Uh, based on the list price. It's likely Ryanair secured a considerable discount, given its history of obtaining discounts from Boeing, though Ryanair did not disclose the specific discount details. Yeah, they never pay retail, you know. No. That's uh, just, you know. Something that they negotiate. I'm sure they paid a lot less than that. Well, and you're mentioning the word cash there. I mean, it's just like you know they're, they're supposed to be paying, paying this whole thing in cash, aren't they? I mean, it's just like I, I, I wonder. I, I mean, I, I did see. A, I think one of the articles I was reading earlier in the week there was like this counter argument that uh, they weren't quite sure if they, this was going to sort of go through because like they they were they weren't going to be paying as much as i think boeing were happy to to let it go for so i, I guess the negotiations are still ongoing but uh, yeah i mean well, what... i think even if they don't get the full 300 that you know even if they strike some kind of deal they'll you know they'll end up at 250 that's that's huge that's a huge uh, vote of confidence in the european air market from Airplanes, almost 800 airplanes. That, that tells you, you know, and when we know Ryanair doesn't spend money uh, unless they think they're going to get it back. So <laughs> that's a, a pretty a big vote of confidence, I think, for, for that that European air travel sector over there. Well, and of course, one of the things that they, I mean, there were, there were sort of talkings about them possibly uh, sourcing uh, their next fleet, you know, either from Airbus or someone like like that. There was talk genuinely of them moving away from the, the Boeing model. So uh, that's, you know, that that is what makes me think there must have been one heck of a discount or a massive deal done here. I mean, will we ever truly find out how much they're spending on these aircraft? Probably not. <laughs> But, well, uh, if you're a shareholder, is, is it is it a public company? Um, I do you know I don't. Some, it'll, it'll leak. It will leak at some point. I tax documents, so. tax tax records. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well, especially as they're paying um, in cash. That's the thing. Yeah, they still got to pay the man. Oh no, I know. I know. Um, <laughs> hey, I am uh, gonna head out because I've got a little project that I have to do, which is involves uh, draining fuel 
from uh, the cub before I could fly with Carlos. From your, so. from your neighbor's uh, cub so that uh, you can get some gas in yours? Is that what you're doing? You're stealing? Uh, hey, there, let's just say there's no cameras out here at uh, and this closed airfield right in southeast United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, leave, right. leave this suppose, one running. Yeah, why not? Yeah, just leave it yeah. running. The millions of viewers that we have, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. yeah no, no. nothing will get past. So explain to me again why you're having to siphon out. I'm very confused. Why are you having to siphon out fuel? What, what's occurring? Uh, you know, most general aviation airplanes, um, and actually even some some commuter, smaller commuter aircraft, um, you can't actually carry full fuel plus a full load. Got a, it's only got a certain number, about 700 pounds for the cup of uh, of useful load. But that with with me and Carlos, and this weekend we are doing some air camping. So we're going up to the Flying Horseman uh, Ranch, flying up in Virginia. Um, so we're Ooh. we're trucking all our tents and and uh, sleeping gear and chairs and all that. So with all of that gear, uh, I got to drain. The the idea was to it's more fun to fly and burn off eight gallons of, of fuel but as jeff can look out his window it's like 1300 foot overcast right now um so instead of burning it off i'm just gonna drain it out into some fuel cans so, <laughs> wow okay well we better let you yeah. get on with that uh, thank you so much for joining us for a little while anyway much appreciated mate and uh, i'm sure we'll see and hear updates uh, about your your travels uh during the week so uh, thank you for joining yeah, that us, sounds mate. good take care captain jeff i'll see you in about three hours all right we'll see you Oh, I feel yeah, very, I feel very, feel very left out here. <laughs> well, come on over, man. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. No, it'll be my turn in October. We'll do, we'll do it all again in October. It'll be fine. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Bye, guys. Take care. <laughs> See you later. Okay, so uh, we'll move on to the next story then, and uh, this one is from now this one's quite a horrendous uh, story here really um looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this one actually um jeff uh, so this is from the uh, the avherald.com and the headline is accident link sf34 at canberra on the 10th of november 2022 the propeller strap penetrates cabin in flight so a link airways saab 340b on behalf of virgin australia uh, registration victor hotel victor echo quebec performing flight victor alpha 633 from canberra to sydney in australia was departing canberra's runway 35 when a strap used to secure the left hand propeller on the ground struck and penetrated the left side of the aircraft causing minor injuries to three passengers the flight crew having received an emergency call from the cabin crew stopped the initial climb at 3000 feet and returned to the airport for an immediate landing on runway 35 around seven minutes after departure australian federal police reported three people were assessed for minor injuries the atsb deployed investigators on site and reported a ratchet strap attached to a propeller punctured the side of the plane with one of its ends appearing inside the cabin shortly after takeoff the strap had been used to secure the propeller overnight and had not been removed the airline reported the aircraft landed safely back there were no injuries to passengers or crew in may 2023 the atsb released the following abstract indicating the investigation is estimated to be finished by quarter four 2023 the aircraft was operating as virgin australia flight va 633 
scheduled from Canberra to Sydney, South Wales, New South Wales. Prior to the flight, a strap for restraining the uh, for retaining, sorry, the left propeller blade was not removed, and the engine was started with the strap attached. The strap was thrown free of the blade during the final stages of takeoff, and it penetrated the fuselage. One passenger received minor injuries, and the aircraft sustained minor damage. Now, I've got some photographs here of the incident. I mean, it's describing it as, I suppose, in, in the grand scheme of things, it is indeed um, minor damage. But, uh, I mean, the very fact that this went right through the, the, the fuselage, if you like, into into the actual passenger compartment itself, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, gives indication as to how much um, power and speed, obviously, this thing was was going around at. So, I mean, that's it coming in through the wall of the, of the aircraft. I mean, a minor injury is frankly astounding. I mean, it's just like, it's unthinkable. It doesn't look like minor damage to me. That looks like <laughs> major damage. It's a hole right through the fuselage. Yeah, yeah. From one side through to the other. I mean, it's just absolutely bonkers, isn't it? This is, uh, I mean, now th th there's been lots of interesting debates about this during the week, actually, uh, in, in terms of uh, lo lots of negative comments, if you like, about uh, like these prop planes and like loads loads of comments on the AV, AV Herald uh, site. We're talking about things like, you know, that's why I only ever fly jet and all that kind of thing. I mean, how do you, f I mean, this is, I guess in, in fairness here, this is, this is a clear error uh, by the person who did the walk round check, isn't it? I mean, there's no two ways about yes. that. There's no reason why that should have, you know remained on there so i mean no. can you can you blame prop planes for the reason why this awful incident happened when it was human error essentially no and there's good reason that we have prop planes they're very or much more efficient mm. uh, for shorter stage length type of type of flying and a lot of the places that we fly around the world you can't get a jet in there the, the turboprops are perfect for that mm. uh, but they get a lot of you know they get a lot of bad uh, press uh, for being propeller-driven airplane, but, mm. uh, airplanes. But the thing, you're right, Matt, that uh, the exterior pre-flight inspection wasn't as thorough as it should have been. Mm. Uh, that's number one. They should have caught that. Number two, I'm impressed that that strap stayed on the propeller that long. Uh, for as long as it did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, it wasn't until the takeoff stage that this mm. thing flew off and got flung into the into the fuselage mm. and uh yeah we did talk about this on uh, our show when it, uh, shortly after it happened in mm. november uh but i uh didn't know that w there was a a, a um, abstract for the uh, uh i guess it's not a final report yet there was no no they just released this sort of this little update if you like um yeah. i say the um the, well, the, fi the final update's not due to till quarter four, um, oh, okay. sort of yeah. 2023. But as I say, they've sort of, I think, I think they've more or less said that we know what caused it. Um, I think that's the, that's the reality, isn't it? Well, um, Matt, do you have any advice for people uh, as far if, if they're going to take a flight on a propeller-driven uh, airplane? Uh, any advice for passengers? Uh, yeah, don't do it. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, what what does your? I mean, how how do you feel about sort of? I mean, I've I've never I've, I've actually never been on a prop plane so it's very difficult for me to to sort of comment honestly on this sorry I've got a, a problem in the mm -hmm. studio where my TV is about to turn off if I don't do something so apologies for that uh, there we go sorted um, yeah I, I mean I'm a nervous flyer anyway I have to say the flight that I've just done to Gran Canaria and back is the most nonplussed I've ever been about a flight and that's despite a very bumpy landing coming in at uh, Gran Canaria because it's a you know, very heavy crosswinds and we basically mm -hmm. landed sort of 
like slightly diagonal because of a mm-hmm. you know gusts and all that kind of thing um i'm not sure uh, in some respects this this particular incident if you like helps me in lots of ways because that's human error that's got nothing to do with with a prop plane if you see what i mean mm-hmm. the person who did the walk around didn't do what they're supposed to have done and that's why this incident took place so i suppose from my perspective it hasn't really changed how i feel about about being on a prop plane because um you know there's a very obvious cause or a reason for it you know so if i i guess if something did happen you know i'd be more inclined to be sort of you know difficult with the with the people involved rather than blaming the prop plane itself um i mean there's a, a couple of the comments in the per, the uh, posts uh, the comments section yeah that's what i was i was throwing up the yeah, softball yeah yeah there, yeah, yeah indeed yes yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a rule one when traveling on a turbo prop aircraft don't sit in line with the propeller um rule two travel on a jet uh <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, you, you um, have you flown much prop stuff or no, no? So it's all been jet. Yeah, it's uh, almost uh, you know ninety nine point nine percent of my hours logged uh, are on jet aircraft. Mm. So yeah, not a lot of experience at all, and no zero experience in a turboprop. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know a lot about the propeller world. No. But I do know that these things are, um, you know, they're they're purpose built. They have, I mean, there's there's good reason to operate them in uh, certain missions and certain mm. parts of the world. Indeed, indeed. But but you don't feel any more nervous about traveling on a prop plane than you would say a, a Boeing seven three. I I don't get on an airplane that uh, unless I'm in uh, flying. The thing. Fair enough. You know, so that's my general rule. No, I'm just kidding. I feel perfectly fine flying in a propeller. Yeah. driven airplane uh, the, as I do in a jet. Well, as I say, and this one's clearly down to sort of human error, I suppose. So yeah. you can't really be blaming the prop plane for for this incident when it's because well, somebody didn't do it or something. You know, that's could, a good point. We should get rid of the humans. Absolutely, that's clearly the problem. Because that's the it? answer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, get rid of all the no. humans. Yeah, absolutely. What could possibly go wrong there? Mm. Uh, yeah, I, but I guess I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, if somebody left a cover on a pito, so let, let's let's go back with it, like the jet, for example. If somebody left a mm-hmm. cover on like a pito tube or something like that, I mean, that that can have equally as cat- catastrophic sort of like errors mm-hmm. and you know problems in the cockpit and all sorts of things you know and again Absolutely. that one's down to uh, human error yeah indeed so on to the next story then if we may jeff and we're talking about the uk's best and worst airports for delays that's one of my favorite subjects <laughs> maybe because uh, it's the uk and it doesn't I, involve you <laughs> do i even recognize any of these i do i do re- recognize some of these and uh, it's it's sad that I don't have Liz, my producer, in my ear in the control room to tell me how to pronounce these things. So no, yes, unfortunately, I'm on my own. Our, our one is at work, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. So, I'm, so I'm, yeah. So I guess I'm on my own, and then Matt's here to uh, correct me when I get them wrong. <laughs> I'll give um, it a go. I, I might be worse at the pronunciations than you. <laughs> uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. And just if you do correct me, just please please be gentle. Of course, I'm, I, always. I'm very thin skinned. I'm, I'm, I'm always gentle. Easily upset. Uh, <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, So this is from news.sky.com. UK's, as you mentioned, UK's best and worst airports for flight delays revealed. Uh, Birmingham, not Birmingham, Alabama, but Birmingham uh, Airport topped the list for having the longest average delay per departing flight. 
for a second year in a row. Yay! Way to go. Uh, the analysis of uh, Civil Aviation Authority data by the PA News Agency considered all scheduled and chartered departures, which are with cancelled flights, not included. I mean, you could so, at least Birmingham being consistent, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Consistency is important in aviation. <laughs> Well, most of the time. Yeah. Figures showed that departures uh, from Birmingham uh, Airport were half an hour behind schedule on average in 2022. Wow. That was more than twice as long as the previous year. Oh, they're even getting worse. <laughs> uh, when it was also ranked last for punctuality. A spokesman for the airport said the flight industry fought hard to recover after the glo global COVID-19 pandemic and said operations were running smoothly this year. CAA head of consumer... Anna Bowles said, our data tells us that too many passengers faced disappointing levels of delays across UK airports last year. It is important, it is important consumers experience a high-quality service from both airlines and airports this year. We expect airlines to proactively provide passengers with information about their flights when or their rights when flights are disrupted. Yes, you can <laughs> inform them of you know what kind of compensation they may get for uh, performance of the airline and airport, I guess. Mm. And uh, should I read some of these on this list? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, if you want, I'll go through them if you like. So we've got uh, Birmingham, uh, Manchester with 29 minutes, uh, Doncaster, Sheffield, 29 minutes, Luton, 28 minutes. Uh, I have to say my flight, because my flight was from Luton uh, last week, and I have to say uh, we, were, we were away on time going out, but coming back into Luton, we were, I think, nearly an hour late. So, uh. so yeah, they sort of made up for it. Gatwick, uh, I'm surprised being a big, being a big sort of like, uh, you know, London Gatwick, you know, a major airport. Mm. I'm surprised that that's at 27. Bristol is uh, 26 minutes. This is the average delay. Uh, Cardiff, 24 minutes. Edinburgh, uh, 24 minutes. Heathrow, 22 minutes. That must be very disappointing for everyone involved there. Obviously, being I know it's a big airport with multiple terminals, but uh, that's quite a quite a long list of delays there. Newcastle is 21 minutes on average. Uh, Isle of Man is a surprise because obviously a much much smaller airport. Um, uh, I don't know whether perhaps it's because of uh, like with Aberdeen, uh, which is next. Perhaps that could be weather related, maybe because mm -hmm. it is obviously very windy and gusty in in the Highlands and and things. Leeds, Bradford, twenty minutes. Southend, twenty minutes. Obviously that's. Uh, fairly close to us. Glasgow, 19 minutes. Stansted is 19 minutes as well. That's obviously the nearest airport to me in Carlos. Southampton, 19 minutes. Bournemouth uh, was uh, 19 minutes. London City, 17 minutes. I'd be, be interested to hear Nev's uh, comments on that one. I don't know how, how many delays he experiences uh, regularly. We know he's a stickler for punctuality, certainly. Uh, Jersey, 17 minutes, which again is a surprise. Again, a very small airport there. Barefoot, Belfast International actually not doing too bad at 16 minutes on average delay uh liverpool john lennon 15 minutes belfast city 15 uh, minutes exeter 14 teesside 14 minutes as well and uh, the best performing out of all those is on average 13 minute delay at east midlands so yeah it's uh, no surprises there i guess although i must admit as i say i sort of half expected the major london ones to be sort of performing perhaps better than they are but perhaps i'm uh, Perhaps I'm in the minority there. I mean, I, I guess Heathrow is about the only one you've come into through, is it, Jeff? Yeah, I think so. I think that that's the yeah. of this list. Uh, they're the only one 
that I've uh, been in and yeah. out of, and did, only as a passenger. And, uh, yeah. Oh, right. I was just intrigued. Yeah. Did Did you ever do any like London's like? I know you don't I, do London um, so much now. When I was in the Air Force, uh, the uh, it was a it was pretty. Uh, uh, popular, not popular. It was pretty common mm. for our C-141B Starlifters to fly into what was the Air Force base uh, that uh, Armando was. Stationed? Oh, at Mildenhall. Yeah, Mildenhall. Yeah, yeah. And that was a very common destination for uh, the military airlift command. And oh, okay. uh, I never, I never once uh, <laughs> flew in to uh, Mildenhall at all. Well, I'm sure Armando would say you didn't miss much, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe oh, so. I don't know. Oh well, but, uh, it's much I more. I got into a lot of other places like uh, uh, Torrejon. Actually, uh, uh, forgot the actual. Um, yeah, Torrejon's mm. outside of Madrid. Oh wow! And uh, a couple of the uh, German uh, bases and uh, Norway and some others, but uh, never into uh, the UK. Lots, lots of European destinations in in there. So yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. Right. We'll move on to the next story then, and uh, the UK. Uh, so UK Aviation New Dot News is the source. This one's from, and the headline is St. Ath- Athens-based XBA BOAC liveried jumbo could be scrapped. Now this is very, very sad news. Uh, sources close to the subject have confirmed to the UK Aviation News that E Cube is seeking to. Part out uh, to part out the former British Airways Boeing 747-400 uh, registration Golf uh, Bravo Yankee Golf Charlie jumbo jet, which wears the iconic BOAC livery. The aircraft was sold into the care of E-Cube on the basis that it had a preservation plan, but it now seems E-Cube had failed to secure funding to do that. It had been planned to give the to give the public access to the aircraft at a site outside of the perimeter of the airfield, but it now seems that Yankee Charlie is destined for the profit, is destined for profit rather than preservation. Boeing 747-400 GBYGC, uh, I don't know why I had to repeat that, uh, was the first of three BA jumbos to be painted into a special livery to celebrate 100 years of British Airways. Landor is now kept at Dunsfold uh, under the care of a TV production company and uh, Negus has been uh, converted into a conference and party venue at Cotswold Airport. The move could prove especially disappointing given there is already an established aviation museum, South Wales Aviation Museum, on the same site. Attempts have been made to contact EQ but calls have not been answered. British Airways has also been asked for comment. now, I mean, I, I, I got very lucky to get to actually see this one when we, when we were doing some uh, viewings over at, we were doing some recording over at Heathrow and the aircraft was actually there. I mean, this is, it's a bit of a shame really because it's, uh, A, because it's a, a 7-4 um, and presumably it's still fully serviceable. You know, they could, uh, I presume it can still be flown if they wanted, oh, wanted so. to. Um, but yeah, just a bit of a, a bit, a bit sad really, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're supposed to be quite good in the UK here about um, our, our like history, but uh, I have to say of late, especially like with the guppy and things like that, um, that I know Neil uh, Lamorne had a lot to do with. I mean, it's uh, we're sort of letting ourselves down a little bit at the moment. But it's a beautiful looking, 
beautiful looking example obviously because it's very recently painted it wasn't that long ago obviously it was because it was still flying just before covid times yeah um, nice and shiny nice and shiny indeed i must admit i don't know a lot about boac uh <laughs> nev i'm sure would be able to tell us all about it but uh, yeah or somebody like really really old like captain nick right <laughs> he's in bed about now isn't he sorry (laughs) (laughs) probably yeah indeed but uh, yeah very very sad uh, very very sad indeed uh now story number seven has got my name on it um Mm -hmm. but uh if you wouldn't mind taking story number seven please jeff i would love to uh this is from the independent.co.uk and also um, must be a video in here from TikTok. Yes, I've got that. Yes, yes. I, I okay. will play that in the background while you're uh, while you're chatting um, away. All right, very good. I'll start chatting right now. A man <laughs> has captured the journey his suitcase took through an airport after attaching a camera to the bag before checking it at luggage drop-off. Thomas Miller, who goes by the username ThomasMiller719 on TikTok, help loaded a video of the unique perspective captured by his suitcase last month. In the clip, he began by explaining it was time to find out what the airport does with my bag. Uh, The video captured by the miniature camera saw the suitcase get placed on a long conveyor belt, which we're seeing now, uh, then uh, which carried it along a number of turns as it made its way into a large room in the airport. Uh, The bag then appeared to exit a machine, which may have been a security screening, before it was then transferred onto a different conveyor belt. Uh, It captured a moment that the suitcase passed by an airport employee. The video of the bag's journey concluded with footage of the suitcase being pilfered by uh, some employees. No, I'm sorry. That's not what it says. (laughs) Footage of the suitcase being placed on a large pile of other suitcases. Although the video did not show the process, the Transportation Security Administration, TSA, notes that luggage undergoes a screening similar to the one travelers go through. Uh, the checked baggage is transported by the air. Oh, before the checked baggage is transported by the airline onto your respective flight. Um, although recording in airports is generally permitted, the points guy notes uh, that recording Border Patrol and Custom agents uh, agents is not recommended, as the majority of these interactions are not considered public. Uh, am I supposed to be reading this? Um, um, yeah, no. Well, it's not really the the. It's uh, I, I don't know. It's a tricky one, isn't it? This is mm. this is um, yeah. The, the the bits in green are like notes, if you see what I mean. For, okay. Uh, but um, you know, I was wondering why it was a different color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should yeah, stop reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, also Nick, who's, who's who who does a bit of the uh, um, the the production as well, is sort of saying what sort of mm-hmm. camera it is. I think he's quite interested in having one him, himself. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel a bit uneasy with this particular video because, I mean, you're not normally able to sort of film that part of it. And I, I guess if, if if it was being filmed like with like the airport's knowledge, I'd feel perhaps slightly different about mm-hmm. it. But obviously, it's been done without them knowing. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. Is is this a breach of some kind of I don't know code of conduct or something? It's tricky. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the legality is. Uh, regarding that uh, I would imagine though there there are rules that say you can't well you can take the footage but you're not allowed to you know maybe publish it publish or distribute it, yeah. it indeed yeah he says having just played the video uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else's name on it, I guess. Um, yeah, it's. It, I, I don't know. As I say, it, for some reason, it makes me feel a little bit un, uneasy. And uh, mm-hmm. as as it's as 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 you were saying in the in the in the green bits, there is that the majority of these interactions are not considered public, and that outside of the US, uh, it is not recommended that you photograph, film, or record any government agent or government building prior to permission from the government. Um, yeah, I don't know because this is. I, I mean, I suppose we've all taken. Fo- I mean, you know, I, I did as well. I took a photograph of, uh, you know, did the classic while you were airside, taking a photograph as you, of the airplane as you're getting on board and and all that kind of thing. I mean, t- I, I guess technically that is a restricted area. Um, I don't know. I, perhaps this will um, clear some of the confusion up. Perhaps um, mm. if uh, you know now somebody has recorded it. I mean, I guess you could argue that he wanted to make sure that he got. The footage in the same way people often have these air tags don't they when they're when they're sort of on their cases maybe this is their mm-hmm. attempt to sort of you know like that on steroids essentially um to sort of see exactly what happens to their case should it get destroyed or or damaged especially if it's a bit like these tags where it's uploading the data into the cloud right i didn't i uh, maybe i just don't remember reading it but uh was this somewhere in the u.s that uh um, this took place because it yeah i was kind of surprised that there was a uh, quote uh, from the Transportation Security Administration, which is a so, U.S. Yeah, thing. It, it so would, it su- yeah. So it suggests it was in the in the U.S. I, I'm just having a look at the original article just to see if there's anything mm-hmm. um, to say. It doesn't really say, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, but, well, then there uh, should be no problem with you. No, <laughs> indeed, it'll be fine. What could possibly go wrong? Um, exactly. But. Uh, yeah, interesting story. Um, yeah, has he broken rules? What does anybody what 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 does anybody reckon? Um, I'm just trying to see if there's anything. A very grey. So Mark Priestley saying a very grey area. I would I would think it would have to be a a, a big no. Um, and uh, everybody's saying hello to Pip. Pip's just joined us in the chat room. Um, Nick hey, wa- but- Nick wants to know the what that camera is because he said that'd be ideal for for when he's uh, out and about on his motorbike. Uh, it's probably not a bad idea somebody else here is uh uh blackhawk is saying uh, it's probably jeff's fault that's nice isn't it uh, <laughs> yeah probably my fault i'll take full responsibility indeed absolutely okay well that pretty much uh, concludes believe it or not um our commercial section we've got lots of uh, videos to play out uh he's just trying to switch to the right screen uh while he does he does this this is the only trouble when you're the only one in, in here pressing all the buttons it's i wish all... i could help yeah i have yeah, no controls too. here me too me too absolutely <laughs> uh so we are going to we've still got military to come don't worry armando although he's not here now has uh, sent us in some full reports uh, on uh, the goings on in the world of military uh, but it's now time to uh, have a ca- catch up with Nev basically. Nev met up with uh, Sam uh, earlier last week. Sam is an avid PTUK listener. Yes I know there are some. I know it's a shock for you Jeff uh, <laughs> First Officer Wait a minute I thought he was an avid a- APG listener. <laughs> he probably is. You guys keep stealing all of our, uh, our, our uh, We have to find them from somewhere. Viewers uh, uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Sam is an avid PT UK and APG listener and first officer <laughs> of, on the Boeing 757 and Boeing 767. He talks to Nev about his career in the military and on commercial aircraft. So, uh, you've flown into London today. Uh, what aircraft were you flying? Uh, 767. Nice, excellent. Um, do you, and you're on the 757 as well, I guess. 
Correct, yeah. 757 usually domestic, every once in a while we'll fly international, however. Uh, and of course today I took your seat on the 767-1 Alpha. Oh, <laughs> excellent, I'm so pleased to hear that. Now of course uh, the 757, although it's one of my favorite aircraft, it's not one of Matt's favorite aircraft, but that's, <laughs> that's his problem, that's all I can say. Uh, so Sam, tell us a bit about your flying career and what, uh, how you ended up in the right-hand seat of a 767. Well, I started off growing up on Long Island, close to LaGuardia Airport, which is a domestic airport in the United States. Watching airplanes fly over, and I realized that's something I wanted to do. <clears throat> I eventually found my way into the Reserve Officer Training Program in the United States, which is uh, with some universities, and you can be commissioned as an officer. I did that and got commissioned as an aviation officer in the Army. About to fly helicopters. Started out in the mighty TH-55. It's a small two-seat piston-powered trainer. Uh, but looking back, it's probably one of my favorite airplanes because I got to solo in it. Got to do a bunch of soloing where the flight instructors actually yelled at me on the radio that it was time to come down. Uh, from there, I moved on to the ubiquitous UH-1. Uh, flew that for the rest of flight school and then moved on to the U-860, great aircraft, flew that in Korea, uh, then went back to being an instructor in the uh, Blackhawk, flew for special operations in the Blackhawk, and then at the rank of major. Um, my wife was also a pilot, and I was deployed to Central America, called home, and she was not home. She was deployed to the Middle East. Some friends were watching our kids. My wife and I exchanged emails. I realized I reached my max level of incompetence as a major and realized I really just wanted to be a pilot. So I decided to leave active duty and become a pilot so I could kind of take care of the kids while my wife did the active duty thing of the military. Uh, I needed fixed wing time, so I did some flight instructing. I then did what was called uh, flying canceled checks. Something we don't think about now with electronic checks, but in the old days, if you cash a check in one part of a country, and your bank was another part of the country, that bank in your part of the country wanted that money as soon as possible, so they would fly the checks around the country to get them their money. And so uh, I would fly, I would pick up checks in the morning, fly them out to different banks. Then I'd spend the day in some airport around the United States, fly back in the evening, bring the checks back. They would then be distributed around the United States. It was really like the old days when the mail flying. Uh, it was really kind of hazardous flying, depending on where you live. The checks had to get through. There were fatal accidents probably several times a year from these young pilots flying checks around. So I did that for about a year, built up the fixed wing time I needed to get hired by a regional. Got hired by a regional flying the ATR-72, eventually the CRJ. 9-11 uh, happened, I got called back to active duty, flew Blackhawks again in the Middle East. Uh, came back, flew for the regionals again, I realized I was not going to get called by a major. At the time, 9-11 had happened, the 2008 recession had happened, age 65 had happened. 
a lot of us were in the same seat. So I was in the left seat for the CRJ for a long time. And majors weren't hiring me or other captains. So I went to a cargo carrier, Coletta Airlines. It was uh, what they call uh, ACMI. It's kind of a you call we haul type of cargo flying on 747. It was a lot of fun. Flew all over the world. Got to see wonderful different places. Fly with great crews. But the trips were kind of long, 16-day trips. And I realized that's not something I want to keep doing, being away from the family that long. So I went back to uh, airline flying, got hired by my current uh, major airline, to call it Acme World. Initially as a 737 pilot, and then eventually after COVID, moved on to 757 and 767. In my airline, we fly them both together. Uh, so I'll fly them interchangeably. 757 and 767. That's, that's what I do now. It's a long roundabout path. That's how I finally got to being a uh, pilot in a major airline in the United States. It's a fascinating journey, isn't it, Sam? And uh, what would you say, I mean, would you prefer the military flying to the commercial flying? What, what, what's, the, what's the differences between them uh, and how do you relate to them? Wow, uh, would I prefer... I'll have to say the civilian flying. It's nice to be able to go someplace, relax, and have a beer or a glass of wine with some friends. Uh, I did enjoy the military flying. It was kind of challenging. Uh, but I definitely much prefer what I get to see and experience with the civilian flying. Like I said, the places I get to see, especially fixed wing compared to helicopter. Uh, so I, I, I much prefer that the civilian side versus military side. But I did enjoy both. It's not a, like I hated the military flying. Uh, but I do enjoy being able to reach up, hit a button on the top of the overhead panel, call somebody in the back and get a nice cold Coke brought up to me with some ice versus uh, flying around Iraq and having to shove a frozen bottle of uh, water down my flak vest to try and cool off. Yeah, that's, uh, I get that. That's a, a whole different experience. Now, actually, you're probably in London more than I am at the moment because you're doing a, a lot of flying into Heathrow, aren't you, from your uh, home base airport? Yes, and uh, I like to quote Samuel Johnson, as I think I did with you, that if you get bored with London, you get bored with life. Uh, London is our junior trip, so I get assigned it a lot since I'm a junior 756 pilot, but... I go to a different restaurant every time, pretty much I'm in London. Sometimes I'll go to the same one twice in a row, but I still have not run out of great places to eat and have a pint in London. So it's a wonderful place. And I sometimes will try and change it out for someplace else, but I can't say I'm disappointed when I come to London. Well, that's nice of you to say, Sam. Now, I was looking at Flight Radar 24 last night because I was a bit bored with nothing to do. <laughs> I'm just amazed at the amount of traffic that's coming across the North Atlantic. Um, you know, uh, late in the night, your time in the US and early in the morning, our time here in London. The North Atlantic tracks and the North Atlantic separation and the procedures, is that quite a, uh, a difficult thing to, to learn? I wouldn't say it's difficult, it's something different than the domestic fly. Once you get used to it, it's not really a big deal, you get used to the offset. And the air traffic control is pretty precise in what they tell you to do. You have certain altitudes and airspeeds. 
And then you have what called is slops, strategic lateral offset procedures. I think I got that right. Where you're either on your track, you're offset to the right one mile or two miles. And they make it random. You get to pick what you want to do. And that gives a little bit more separation as well. So even with all that traffic going over the Atlantic, you'll maybe see somebody pass over, but there's always that separation both vertically and laterally. Um, so it, it, it's an interesting procedure. It's one once you learn, it's not that difficult. It's just one you you, you do have to learn it first. You are trained on. I was just uh, talking to one of my friends the other day about your one's circadian rhythm uh, and, and the time differences. Uh, you look in very good shape, I have to say, considering the, the flight that you've done. Now, obviously, East Coast US to the UK is, is the shorter flights, but as we all get a bit older, does, does the, that circadian rhythm uh, and the tiredness really begin to uh, cause you difficulties at all? Well, it's funny you say that because I have one of these uh, rings, health rings, my wife gave me. And it tracks a lot of your health things, such as sleep, exercise, things like that. And it keeps giving me alerts that my health cycle is not random, is not precise, and I need to get a more regular sleep cycle. Uh, and that obviously is kind of tough, but I've kind of got my procedure down through Europe where I try and nap on the aircraft. We have crews that rotate out, most like a ship, where you pull watch on the bridge of a ship. You do the same on an aircraft. And we're permitted when we go back to the rear to get some sleep in the uh, either crew rest area or in the cabin. And I'm fairly good at being able to get some sleep there about an hour to an hour and a half. And then when I get to, the, uh, to, either, uh, to Europe, I'm pretty good at being able to sleep another hour and a half to two hours. And that gets me set up to where I can sleep that night. And so I've got my rhythm down where I am able to do it. But yes, it can be tough. And I know uh, when I was doing Asian flying, that was a lot more difficult when I got home. It would take me two to three days to get back from a cycle. Well, when I get back from Europe flying, normally I get back in the evening US time. I'm already tired. So I'm able to get back to sleep and get back on the cycle quickly versus the Asian flying, which yeah, is a lot more difficult. That's why I like the Europe flying for my age or our age as we get a little more in years. Yeah, you're right. And I think if you've, if you've got a rhythm and something that, that works for you, that, that's a big thing, isn't it? I would say. Yes. Yeah, very much of that rhythm of what works best for you. That works well for me. I guess one of the things I did take from the military, I'm able to kind of nap on command. I've got this area I go to, I put myself in that area, I close my eyes, and within 15 minutes I'm able to be asleep, and that helps quite a bit. I know other pilots wonder how I can do that, it's just an art I picked up in the military. Yeah, excellent. So what are the load factors like these days going across the North Atlantic on, on your uh, aircraft? Are the uh, flights pretty full? Uh, I wouldn't say totally full, there are always some seats open it seems. Uh, although I'm going to London mostly, and we have a lot of flights to London. Uh, so I'd say probably 75 to 80% full, where you know, this, for us as employees, it's probably the sweet spot where there's enough seats open where if we want to go to Europe, we can get to Europe. Uh, I know the company would like to see every seat filled, so it's kind of that balance where it's not too few seats open, where we're not making money, enough seats full, where we're making money, 
but a couple open where if employees want to go fly for pleasure, they can still fly for pleasure. So probably that perfect balance. Yeah, it's always a difficult uh, thing. Yeah, if you're the accountant and the, the fellow with the spreadsheet in front of him, as you say, you, you won't see that uh, for the 100%, I'm sure. Uh, what was the weather like coming across the North Atlantic today? Oh, it was actually fairly nice. Uh, a couple of bumps here and there. We were trying to see belt sign on. Uh, no bad weather at all, though, aside from a couple of little bit of turbulence, but nothing worse than a little bit of light turbulence. It was a fairly nice flight. It was the last one where I went back, so... Hopefully this will continue for the next few flights while I'm doing it. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Well, we had quite a lot of convective activity yesterday here, but I think you, you missed all of that because you, you came in a bit later, I guess. So, uh, but uh, what was that? we had quite a lot of convective activity here okay. yesterday uh, around London and the home counties, but yes. I guess that uh, you, you missed most of that, which was, which was good. Yeah, and I think probably about a month ago, you had a very bad low-pressure system here with some really tough winds. Fortunately, I bypassed London. I think I was going to Frankfurt on those trips. I looked at the forecast and the uh, the weather for London at the time, and I was very glad I was not doing the landings in London at the time. I think it was pretty much howling winds and crosswind landings. And I think a few aircraft, more than a few aircraft, had to do go-arounds at that time. Yeah, that was a very challenging time, I must say, for the, uh, the fellas at uh, Heathrow uh, during that time, I must say. Um, in terms of your career, obviously you're, you know, with the 7.6 and 7.5 series now. Uh, is there any aircraft that you would like to fly that you've not had the opportunity of doing so yet? I guess perhaps a 777, just to at least put that into my career to say I, I flew the 7777. Um, I'd also like to fly that aircraft and maybe the 787. However, for the trips that I do, I really do like the 757 the 767. Uh, 777 might have a couple trips in there that I would like to do. However, they do some long distance flying, and at our ages, we're getting along down the years. Uh, I think I'll leave those long haul trips to the younger crowd. Uh, I'll let them take the Tokyos and the Hong Kongs. I love Hong Kong, I'd love to go back there, but maybe it's a passion, and I'll just remember again, where I have to worry about return trip those sectors are very long aren't they and uh, in terms of the sectors that you do are you taking three crew members with you uh, on the aircraft for, for those sort of seven eight hour sectors yes normally it's three crew members uh, sometimes if one crew member is being trained we'll do four crew members so that way uh, on the flight deck if there's being a trained crew member on the flight deck there's always an instructor there uh, and so that way they're able to do that. And so those cases will be four of us. Uh, and those are nicer trips with crew members because there's also more rest time. So you're more prepared when you get to Europe. Absolutely. Well, Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure finally meeting you after all this time. And thank you very much for being such a loyal uh, viewer and listener of the show as well. well thanks, Sam. And I hope I didn't bore everybody. Not at all. Great to see you. And there we go. Uh, fantastic stuff there. Uh, now, uh, you were saying that there, we, we've got some issues in terms of... Uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like you, you thought he was your listener. That's the trouble, isn't it, Jeff? <laughs> I don't even know who this person is anymore. He's dead to me.
<laughs> Quite, absolutely. Still, Actually, though, he, I mean, I was never his favorite. He, uh, I think Captain Nick is, is Sam's oh, I see. favorite right. uh, ABG host. Yeah. Is he right? Okay. We're not, we're not allowed to have favorites, are we? That's not how this Oh, game yeah, works. we're not supposed to. <laughs> All right. But, but I think we do. <laughs> Some people do. Well, it's great. It took, it took them a little while, bless, uh, bless them. It took them a couple of goes, but yeah, Nev finally got the chance to catch up with Sam and find out all about his amazing career, as you know. Uh, we're going to move on to the next part now. Now, you may remember that we were talking remote-controlled flying, or RC flying, uh, with Gr James Graves Brown, and it gives me a did That went really well. Mm. <laughs> Perfect. It's a shame it's live, otherwise I'd do it again. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, remote control flying with James Graves-Brown. It gives me great pleasure to welcome part two. How does the weather, like humidity and extreme heat or extreme cold, affect your flight, if at all? Weather, um, the biggest threat to us doing remote control airplanes would be the, uh, the wind. So that's the most common thing that uh, RC pilots are concerned with. Um, so that's, that's mostly what we, what we look at, but uh, extreme cold that can affect the performance of electric airplanes because the lithium batteries, uh, if they get really cold, they don't perform as well. Uh, so that could uh, be a factor as well. And sometimes the sun, depending on, where where the sun is and where you're flying and things like that uh, but it's not as big of a factor as uh the wind okay uh, yeah. what's what's the difficulty of controlling them and how long did it take you to perfect that <laughs> well i'm still working on perfection just like every <laughs> other pilot out there but uh uh you know it just depends on the plane so you'd start out on a trainer beginner you know and you have intermediate airplanes you have advanced uh Turbines airplanes are usually considered intermediate to advanced airplanes, and uh, just takes practice. Uh, they have simulators now that are very realistic, and uh, they help a lot uh, to to learn how to do it. So, simulators. You just for, work your way up for RCs. Simulators. They do. They wow. indeed do have a RC simulator. Real flight. They're up to real flight nine and a half, I think. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yep. Um, have you ever crashed or destroyed a plane? Obviously, you said earlier that you did. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's part of the hobby. Uh, you build it, you fly it, you crash it, and you repeat. Uh, that's just the way it is. So, uh, yes, I have crashed airplanes, and I crashed my beloved F-18 uh, the other day. Luckily, it wasn't a horrible crash, so I didn't lose my power system or my electronics, just the airframe. Okay, so you could just get a new airframe and you'll be good to go? Yeah. Good. Glad to hear it. Sorry for your loss anyway. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so that being said, are they fairly durable in crashes or is like one runway excursion going to kill it? Well, uh, it depends on the plane, of course, and it depends on your mistake. My F-16 only likes the hard surface. Ask me how I know. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it doesn't like the grass. It doesn't like to overrun the runway. doesn't matter how smooth it is. Um, other airplanes don't don't care. They take off and land from the grass, hard surface or not. Uh, you know, it, it, of course, airplanes and trees don't get along. Uh, Naturally. <laughs> ask me how I know. Uh, so, that yeah, it all depends on your mistake. But, um, in, yeah, they're 
they're, they can be fairly durable, surprisingly. Okay, good to know. Because, you know, if I ever get around to flying one, I'm going to need the most durable one they have. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, what's the cost of owning one and flying one, like, both annually and per flight? Well, uh, trainer airplanes, you can get started for surprisingly cheap nowadays. Uh, you could probably get into, get everything you need for $300 or so with a trainer. Uh, then you get to intermediate airplanes, you know, the things that I like, like uh, electric jets. Uh, they, they're called EDFs, electric ducted fan. Um, okay. they, they run anywhere from 400 to $600, generally in that range. And then once you get to turbines, you're start talking to thousands of dollars. Uh, so estimating cost of my F-16 all up with the engine, the airframe, electronics, all that stuff, it's probably about $4,000 flying around. And that's a cheaper turbine. There's definitely more expensive ones out there. Oh, my gosh. That's nuts. That's, it's awesome, though. <laughs> it's a cool hobby. So now, what's the cost per flight? Is there like a – I mean, I, assuming you go out and you dump a whole tank of Jet A in there, what are you what are you looking at cost wise? Um, my F sixteen it's got a one point eight liter tank. Okay. So if I was to guess, a gallon of jet fuel is about six bucks or so a gallon right okay, now. Okay, that's not so bad. So you're probably it's probably like two or three dollars in fuel per flight. Cool. So any of us can go out there and do this. Let's go. <laughs> sure. Yeah. As long as you don't crash, you know your flights are cheap. Well, okay. Now you're you're talking a whole other game there. Um, right. Is there many shops around that sell and modify these RC planes? They're becoming a, a rare breed, uh, the actual in-person shops. And uh, I'll admit to my fault of not going to my local hobby shops. I would encourage anyone who gets into it to go and support because that's where you're going to find your repair help, your expertise, knowledge of how to fix or build airplanes. Um your online shops don't give you that typically. And uh, so that's kind of the, the trend in the hobby right now. The, the brick and mortar stores are going away and uh, it's a, it's a sad resource to see go. Yeah. That kind of just puts it all on your shoulders, order your parts and figure it out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good learning, but also yeah, it's, I remember as a kid going to hobby shops and that was always a fun thing to do. It always gave you something to look forward to. So of course, yeah. Sad to see them go. Um, yeah. Tell me about the RC owners community. Like, do you guys have a big online presence, or is it all uh, a bunch of cities, or is it more catered to individuals? Yeah, the, the community's great. Uh, everybody's there for fun. So everybody's generally happy. They're willing to help each other. Uh, you'll find all kinds uh, doing remote control airplanes and drone racing, for that matter. And uh, it's it's really part of the fun, honestly, is uh, is the community. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I have a, a Scion XB. I don't know if you know what that is. It's one of the real square yeah. cars. Well, I have I have met some of the coolest people online Facebook groups for XBs, and just there, it's it's this whole interesting world that exists mostly on Facebook, but it's all throughout the country. It's really cool to see. It's always a pleasure to get around like-minded people that like the same thing as you and well, yeah, and participate. I've, yeah, I've found a lot of interesting, cool people on, in these uh, podcasts that I listen to with the aviation community. So I'm I'm yeah. thankful for it. Um, do they hold air show style events for the 
RC planes, like, you know, mini air shows and, and whatnot? Yes, they do. Uh, and those are always a lot of fun. Uh, typically, it just depends on the club and the event, but it can range from a fun fly, as they call as they're called, where anybody could come out and fly. Uh, typically, they have a theme, you know, uh, the ones I like to participate in have to do with jets, of course, but they have warbird themes, they have float flies, they have just typical fun fly, Any anything goes. Um, so they have the fun flies, but they also have competitions as well, and invitational competitions where you have to be invited. And those competitions, so. do they give out, are they for money or for bragging rights or trophies? How does that work? Uh, all of the above, I think. I, you know, I've okay. never participated in one competition, but uh, fair enough. Yeah, I think they, I think they compete for for real prizes. And do you guys get big crowds coming out to these events, like spectators? Uh, it depends on the event. Um, the the club I belong to held like a 60th anniversary uh, fly-in air show, so they invited the community. And lots of people showed up. Hundreds of people showed up That's to cool. watch the uh, the RC Air Show. Yeah. And uh, we've had other events where it's really just for the club and any random spectators. Uh, so, you know, it ranges. So, okay. So are, are the clubs and the uh, events open to all experience levels? Of course, yeah. And that the clubs are sponsored by the AMA, the Academy of Model Aeronautics. And they, uh, they're a great resource for anybody who's new they have uh both clubs i belong to have a training night so if you want to oh, learn wow. how to fly rc you go you arrange with the instructor to go out there once a week or more if you want and uh and fly a trainer airplane with well, an instructor at your side and i assume that being the community is so open that you can find peers that would gladly teach you how to how to fly uh, yep assuming you're not designated instructors and uh I've taken one person under my wing, uh, but he he was already a airline pilot, so it wasn't <laughs> terribly difficult to instruct him. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I would assume that if I walked up to somebody with my own jet, <laughs> of course, they'd be like, yeah, I'll teach you. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, do you get spectators when you're doing your own private flying? Like, say you take your, your jet out to the club just for some practice or something. Do you get people driving by and stopping to to take a look at what you're doing or yeah occasionally um the uh the club the one club i fly the jets at is pretty um out in the country it's not really close to anything so there's not so many spectators at that club the other one that i attend is next to a bunch of soccer fields so you'll get people all the time oh, coming cool. to, to to watch and that are interested and when i'm drone racing it's in a soccer field uh as well so we'll get a lot of spectators coming out to see what's going on. <laughs> supposed to be there to watch little Billy's soccer game and everybody's got their eyes yeah. turned around watching the drones. <laughs> yeah. The drones are cool. They got LEDs on them and they make a lot of noise. And Yeah. I've uh, watched the video. We got the loudspeakers with the PA, you know, people announcing and stuff. So that is nuts. Yeah. I, 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 I don't comprehend how people have the, the skills to fly those things as fast as they do. And the videos that I've seen online anyway, <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into story time. I want to hear a good good story about your past with, uh, with aviation. Story, okay. Well, how about an RC story? Please do. Um, yeah, so 
when I was a kid, uh, my dad and I would go to an abandoned airport in St. Louis area, and uh, we'd fly our RC plane. And it was just before Christmas one year. I was a young teenager, and we were flying our airplane around, or I was flying the airplane around. And it was wintertime weather. You know, it was pretty windy and kind of, you know, dreary out. And the the wind was pretty strong aloft. So I'm flying around, and this is my old electric airplane that had NICAD batteries in it. And one of the characteristics of NICADs is the power would fade over the flight. So you wouldn't have full power. Uh, unlike the LiPo batteries today, where you get full power more or less until the end of the battery's life. Uh, so I'm flying along, flying along, and it's time to land. Well, I'm trying to get the airplane back to the runway, but the wind is so strong I don't have enough power. So I'm full <laughs> throttle into the wind and the airplane's still going away from me. <laughs> and it got so far away that it was just a little pink and yellow dot on the horizon. And I eventually it hit the ground. Oh, so my man. dad and I go out and try and find it. And it, we're in all these farm fields and looking all over the place and not having any luck. So this is the day before Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve, my dad goes out first thing in the morning, trying to find it, trying to find it, can't find it. No. So pretty disappointing, you know. So we didn't give up that easy, though. Day after Christmas, my dad uh, puts his name on the schedule to rent the helicopter that he was checked out in. And we, <laughs> and we flew an R-22 around these fields and did a search and rescue That's mission awesome. for our RC plane. So. So we found it, and uh, but the helicopter is so small we couldn't bring the airplane inside. So what we had to do was just remember where it was, and um, we uh, we spotted it. And uh, okay, remember it's next to that speed limit sign about a hundred yards out to the north. Okay, and uh, so we landed the helicopter, drove back over there, and found it. <laughs> That's such a good story. <laughs> How long do you still have that plane? No, it's long gone. Ah, oh, that's unfortunate. That'd be really cool. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Okay, well, Scott, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to to do this not only once but twice. So this was <laughs> my originally this morning was my first ever interview and my first ever try at podcasting, and and so you know now is my second, and I'm I'm very grateful to have you as my first guest. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Of course, of course. Let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Scott. Thank you again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, James. Bye-bye.
again. I mean, wow. That's, I, lo- I, lo- I love the little touch on there at the end there where he's put R.I.P. Scott's FA-18, which, of course, is the one that they were talking about, which they crashed uh, sort of like early early on there. But, I mean, uh, you were say- did you say that was that like a little um, Blue Angels sort of like rip aircraft, Jeff? Yes, it looks like it. It looks like an F-18 uh, from the blue- with the Blue Angels livery. Love it, love it, yeah. So, our, our huge thanks to James Graves Browns for for putting that amazing little uh, interview together. Uh, if you're inspired to do something similar, please feel free to reach out to any of your aviation friends uh, or relatives. Um, um, why not record a little interview, send it into us, and we'll include it in the show. But no, really, really amazing. Uh, thank you. So um, now uh, we haven't got Armando, uh, but it is time, believe it or not, for a bit of military. Don't worry, uh, we haven't got to sit here and try and muddle it through because Armando has put it all together for us. So if everybody's ready, it's military time. Watch up, buggies, one, three, five, fifty, angel, And in our first story, Armando is talking all about a certain aviation legend. No, it's not Captain Jeff on this one occasion. It is, in fact, uh, Buzz Aldrin. Hey, guys, this first military story is a bit of a feel-good story. Uh, Former astronaut Buzz Aldrin was named an honorary brigadier general in the United States Air Force and made an honorary member of the U.S. Space Force earlier this month after more than 50 years after he set foot on the moon. Now, Buzz Aldrin was also given the chance to be an honorary Space Force Guardian, which is the term for Space Force members that has been adopted by the services and the previous administration when they set up the Space Force. Now, uh, Aldrin, who is 93 years old, was the second person to walk on the moon in 1969 after his fellow Apollo 11 astronaut Neil Armstrong. Now, Buzz Aldrin said, it is thrilling that I am here Uh, Still here to see NASA sending brave astronauts to circumnavigate the moon next year and to land astronauts on the moon soon thereafter. Now that's space exploration. The former astronaut made headlines earlier this year when he married his longtime love, Anka Faur, on his 93rd birthday, tweeting that they were as excited as eloping teenagers. So congratulations to now General Aldrin and uh, now general in the U.S. Space Force, uh, Buzz Aldrin. I mean, I think that's a, a just such a lovely sort of accolade, really, is it? 93, wow. Wow. It's. Uh, I mean, he he really is a a, a legend, isn't he? There's no, there's no two ways about it. I mean, because he's he's best known for being, you know, one of the first ever people uh, to to go to the moon, of course. But uh, yeah, he's just such a such a huge career outside of that that we sort of were almost a bit like sort of less interested in, which is such a shame, really. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. What a what an amazing uh, indeed uh, amazing person. He's one of the few people I'd love to actually meet. Do you know what I mean? And go and have a. I, I, he, I mean, I know he did have a reputation at one time for being a bit grumpy with people. Uh, <laughs> I was, was going to say, was he the guy that would punch people? Yeah, out I think I think he was. Challenged? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. The whole thing is fake. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably doing, probably doing him a terrible disservice, isn't I? But, uh, but uh, yeah. Either way, he is a very cool guy, and it's very much, uh, very much a well-deserved accolade. And uh, to those who haven't seen it, Buzz Aldrin punching a guy who questioned the authenticity of the moon landings is an absolute classic. There you go. <laughs> so, you gotta love that kind of guy. You have absolutely. Uh, we'll move on then to the next military story. This one uh, again from Armando, and it's all about the B seventeen and it being airworthy. And this next military story we've been holding on to for a couple of weeks, kind of just to see what the FAA and the operators have been uh, working out and what they're going to do. But the, the, these operators of the iconic B seventeen Flying Fortress are awaiting the issue of an FAA mandatory airworthiness directive, which is coming in the next couple of weeks, maybe in the next month. It's definitely gonna impact the viability of flying operations for these operators. Now, one B-17 operator has already suspended flying operations as a precautionary measure ahead of the uh, proposed structural airworthiness directive, which relates to the aircraft's wing mount and attachment assembly. Uh, the proposed airworthiness directive and its implications for this aircraft, uh, which is obviously best known for its role in World War II, and then thereafter as a, um, a representative of that era of flying aircraft. Um, this problem stated kind of simply is, is um, old age. That's, that's really the problem. In its wartime role, the iconic four-engine bomber developed a reputation amongst uh, flight crews for its ability to remain airborne uh, despite sustaining significant structural damage and we've seen that in numerous documentaries. Um, with the airframes now well over half a century, now kind of 70, 80 years old, um, the problems of structural integrity and fatigue have become uh, kind of the order of the day and the most pressing issue here. Uh, an airworthiness directive was previously issued by the FAA calling up inspections to detect uh, cracking and uh, uh, corrosion of the wing spar cords, bolts, and bolt holes. Now, the forthcoming FAA airworthiness directive appears to relate to the wing and fuselage attachment assembly and may have arisen from problems found in EAA's aluminum overcast, their B-17. Um, now, that aircraft was grounded in April of 2021 when the wing spar problems were detected during routine maintenance. Now, the significance of the forthcoming airworthiness directive is that the current airworthy aircraft will be grounded until maintenance actions are, are spe specified by the directive can be accomplished. Now, Yankee Lady, one of three flying uh, B-17s in the U.S., that's owned by the Yankee Air Museum, they've already uh, speculatively ceased flight operations ahead of this proposed airworthiness directive. And of course, this is going to affect all three flying examples in the United States, as well as uh, most likely Sally B over there in the UK um, operating out of Duxford. So, and we, we just spoke with, um, with uh, some of the people over there and this airplane is supposed to be, well, all three of the, all four of these airplanes are supposed to be making their rounds across uh, both, both of our countries to the air shows, but this airworthiness directive may significantly impact that possibility. 
Now, having worked with Basler Aircraft on uh, my last job, watching these kind of craftsmen um, produce parts from from the original drawings, you know, some of these drawings are 40 feet on a on a drafting board. Um, they have the ability to create some of these parts that were originally created out of um, originally created, but out of modern materials. Um, and I've watched some some absolute magic happen up there in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, with 80 year old airframe DC three airframes and C-47s. Um, that uh, they are making new parts essentially for these aircraft. So I'm hoping that something like that will happen and somebody will figure out. I know there's a there's a gentleman up in Asheville, North Carolina that uh, manufactures parts for B-17s um, basically out of his own personal hangar. So whatever does happen, I, I can't imagine that it's gonna permanently ground the B-17 aircraft but it's certainly gonna put a damper on some of the flying operations for 2023, maybe even 2024 while they figure it out. I mean, this is potentially very, very sad. I mean, it's such an iconic aircraft. Uh, I, I'm sure, as Armando says in that video there, they will sort of, you know, pull it out of the bag and that. But as you say, it's going to be a tricky season. It's going to be very sad not to see it in the skies uh, sort of this year and next year, really. I mean, um, I've been very lucky to see it a lot because the, the B-17 is, the, I, I think, is the one of the ones that lives over at Duxford, if my memory serves correctly. And they do a lot of the restoration work and stuff there. Uh, or the Sally Beers, I think they often call it because it was used in that film wasn't it i forgot the name of the film that it was in anyway um lovely lovely sort of thing so fingers crossed it'll all be okay he says <laughs> yes indeed uh, right next up we are talking amphibious special ops this military story is pretty cool it is something that we've talked about on the show before the united states special operations command is seeking assistance from japan with a project to develop a seaplane variant of the Lockheed Martin C-130 tactical transport. Now we did report just a few weeks ago that the program, as far as putting the C-130 on floats, has actually kind of been placed on, on hold. But speaking at the Special Operations Forces Week conference in Tampa, about two weeks ago now, SOCOM's head of acquisitions said that the command wants to learn from Japan's experience using its Shinmaya, Shinmaiwa, US-2 maritime cargo aircraft. Now, they did say that uh, Japan is a very important partner, as you can imagine, in the Indo-Pacific. That's according to acquisition executive Jim Smith. He said that they are looking to partner uh, with Japan to see what they can learn from their experience with the US-2. Now, Sirium data lists six of the amphibious capable turboprops in the inventory of Japan's Maritime Self-Defense Force, which uses the aircraft for search and rescue operations. Now, Tokyo first took delivery of the first US-2 in 2009, so it's a relatively modern seaplane aircraft. Now, the United States Special Operations Command interest comes as the US military is, of course, attempting to tailor its forces to a potential conflict in the Western Pacific region, an area characterized by vast expanses of open water, I think, pretty incomprehensible to most of us unless you have actually visited or lived out there. And of course, conflicts that could happen over numerous small islands with minimally developed infrastructure. Now, expanding operations there might necessitate some of this new military equipment. Uh, heavy, lift sea, uh, heavy lift cargo seaplanes have become a particular area of interest for the military in Washington uh, and at U.S. regional headquarters globally 
Now, Special Operations Command specifically communicated its desire for an amphibious aircraft back in 2021 when the Fixed Wing Procurement Office announced that interest that we talked about on the show about modifying Lockheed's MC-130J, the Special Operations variant of this aircraft, for maritime operations by putting it on floats. Now, at the time, SOCOM's head of Fixed Wing Aircraft Procurement said that their office was working with the industry to determine if the concept was even feasible. Um, now, only modest uh, progress seems to have been made since we talked about it on the show. On uh, May 9th, and a uh, spokesperson said that the amphibious uh, C-130 demonstrator will not happen for anytime soon. Um, now, challenges associated with developing water-capable C-130s, news of the Japanese partnership, and uh, the possibility that SOCOM could instead opt to just procure this already operationally proven Japanese US-2 as the headquarters providing logistics support for US Special Operations Forces. SOCOM in Tampa, Florida operates a procurement system that is separate from all the other US military services and that actually includes independent aircraft acquisition. For now, however, SOCOM intends to only learn about Japan's experience with the US-2s, according to their acquisition chief, uh, Smith. Uh, alternatively, the US could develop its all, has their own all-new aircraft. Uh, the Pentagon's Secretive Technology Development Agency, DARPA, is already exploring that possibility with its Liberty Lifter program. Now, launched in May of 2022, uh, that effort seeks to develop a heavy lift cargo seaplane capable of operating without any ground or ship-based infrastructure. Uh, the theoretical aircraft could be capable of taking off and landing in rough seas, and it would make use of wing-in ground effect uh, lift to carry heavy loads and be capable of flying up to 10,000 feet. Obviously, designing a whole new clean sheet aircraft from scratch is going to take years, when the Japanese have already proven that this aircraft that they're using, the US-2, is already very, very capable and might actually only require minimal modifications before being implemented with the US Air, uh, US Air Force and US SOCOM. So more to come on this one, and I feel like we're going to see some of these aircraft in the US inventory pretty soon. Now, now I have to say one of the things that was interesting for me, like what was saying in the chat room here, um, like UH, uh, UH Blackhawk was saying, I didn't know the Japanese had uh, these particular aircraft. I mean, they, I, I mean, airplanes landing on on water or still, uh, you know, I mean, obviously Sully did it, but it wasn't designed to do that. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it, it just, I melts my mind really. Such, uh, such uh, sort of clever stuff. Have you, have you ever like sort of flown a seaplane? like sort of like tried to land on the water or anything or is it i assume it's a very different skill jeff well first of all you have to have skills to do anything in true flying yeah. and uh, and I've, i'm still trying to get up to that level that skill level to do that in a consistent <laughs> way no i'm just kidding um no i and uh, the, I, I have to say though it really kind of upsets me that um this guy Flies an air, uh, lands an airplane in in this river in uh, New York City, and he gets all these accolades, blah 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 blah. I think I fly all these passengers. I mean, multiple times a week, and I land on runways like we're supposed to, and I don't get any special movies or anything. 
<laughs> I think that's totally wrong. On the back for that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Very it's wrong. Very yes. upsetting. We'll, we'll we'll have a we'll have a word with Ron Howard. See what we can do to be yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> No, no. Obviously, uh, it uh, it does involve some some other skills, and and uh, this is one of those things that I wouldn't mind doing uh, in my retirement. Perhaps uh, going to oh, one of those wow. schools, uh, several places around the United States that have special schools to get your seaplane wow. rating or whatever. Uh, so, I mean, w when that day comes, obviously, which is obviously like a million years away, I'm sure, when, when retirement does sort of finally arrive. Uh, uh, yeah, a million days. Yeah. <laughs> no, less than a million days. Is it? Have you, have you, got, have you got a number? Uh, I, I do. Let me, if oh, I can okay. find oh. my uh, Oh, he's got a countdown. Love it. I <laughs> 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 love it. Let's see if I can find it uh, quickly. Uh, this is live, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Actually, while, while, you're, while, you're looking, while you're looking for that, of course, what, the, really where I'm going with this is because Nick rather famously, uh, Captain Nick, I should say, rather famously, mm -hmm. has literally, uh, you know, he finished his flying career and has literally walked away, other than obviously what he does with you guys and, and with mm -hmm. us, like with the interviews, uh, he, he, literally no desire in getting back into an aeroplane and flying mm -hmm. even even for like sort of domestic like or pleasure uh, which is uh, sort of like pretty see it seems like f for something that was so much such a large part of your life to then literally just you know because obviously he was in the air force first and then and then obviously this to sort of like literally drop it and and walk away i mean is is that something that that i mean does that appeal to you can can you sort of get it get where it's coming from and well, I, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, Captain Nick and I are, are alike, and that, that is one way. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love flying, yeah. and if uh, the uh, podcast, aviation podcasting community, you know, they have their own airplane or they have a license and they have a way to rent one and take me up in yeah. a flight around their area, I mean, I'm more than Loving it. more yeah. than happy to, to yeah. do something like that. But it's, it's – I, I, for me, it's like, you know – a little over seven years in the Air Force, and now coming up on 35 years wow. of uh, uh, flying in the airlines. You know, 42, 43 years over 20 something, th 23, 24, 25,000 hours of flying. Mm. I don't know. It's like I think I, I've kind of gotten it out of my system. Yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm looking forward because I'm the adventure that I'm looking forward to is, you know, getting the motor home and uh, just doing all this travel and adventure around the country and maybe Mexico and Canada as well mm. and just really exploring with you know the stuff on the ground and yeah. I don't know that's what excites me now um, I have if if I go all the way to my birthday which actually would be like midnight of the day before <laughs> right. uh, would that would be uh, Christmas day of this year wow um, and so basically 219 days if I flew all the way up to uh, the point that I I was forced to stop flying, but that's not going to happen either because I've taken my vacation and extended it into yep. November. So the week of uh, Thanksgiving, U.S. Uh, Thanksgiving, is uh, the last that I'll probably be flying wow. in my jet. Wow, and, uh, it'll be it. Yeah. Okay. This. Well, well, I mean, it's just like I, I almost can't comprehend it. Uh, if you see what I mean, that's the thing. Because as you say, mm -hmm. you've, you've, you know, living legend, sir. I mean, it's the whole sort of just like the, the sort of the idea legend of legend in my being, own mind. It, quite absolutely. Yes. Or in your own lunchtime, you know, take <laughs> take or take or choose. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, lots of uh, like fun fun bits and pieces is here. So just going back to the story we were talking about here, uh, mm -hmm. Neil Lamorne is saying that uh, a Liberty Lifter sounds like a patriotic push-up bra. I think that's nice. Uh, 
Such man Micah has chipped him and said there was a bra that they were going to name the embargo, but thought better of it when they spelt it backwards. Uh, uh, og, uh, it's far too far too difficult for me to work out. Uh, <laughs> what is it spelled? I don't know. I don't know. Seemed like a good idea at the time. And uh, somewhere along here, we've got uh, a comment from Richard Adams. Uh, well, sorry, Nick. Nick uh, not Nick. Sorry. Uh, some guy called Neville Bounds. I seem to have heard of him from somewhere. It says 35 years of terrifying passengers, which I think is lovely. Uh, and uh, uh, he's uh, uh, Richard Adams suggesting you could squeeze a, uh, a paramotor in the back of the RV. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> what? These people are talking about me, huh? Yes, okay. I know. How rude. <laughs> yeah, that's very How rude, rude of them. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, dear. Anyway, we're, we're doing military still. Uh, and uh, our final piece uh, this evening, again from Armando. And we're talking all about the Navy Museum, uh, Pensacola. Next military story is about the Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, it's uh, just reopened to the public this week on May 17th, which was on Wednesday. Now, access to Naval Air Station Pensacola, which is home to the museum of, uh, as well as the Pensacola Lighthouse and Maritime Museum, uh, has been restricted to Department of Defense uh, ID card holders since December 6th of 2019. Actually, when a terrorist opened fire on the base, uh, killing three individuals and wounding eight. Now. Obviously, between that security incident and the pandemic, the base has been entirely shut down um, until this week. So visitors will be required to enter through the to the air station via the West Gate on Blue Angel Parkway. All U.S. US citizens or U.S. nationals ages 18 or older must provide a real ID. That's your driver's license with a star on the top or a passport. Now, detailed requirements, including restrictions on what can and cannot be brought onto the base are on Naval Air Station Pensacola's website, and you don't want to get that wrong because you don't want to end up in the hands of the Navy uh, police. Now, this museum features more than 150 aircraft representing U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard aviation. The collection also includes a North American B-25 Mitchell, a consolidated PBY-5 Catalina, and an A-7 Corsair II, as well as an exhibit devoted to the recovery of aircraft that crashed in Lake Michigan during World War II carrier qualification operations. Now, this is a 350,000 square foot display that will also feature a flight line located behind the museum's aircraft maintenance and restoration ha uh, hangar that houses a Lockheed C-130 Hercules, plus versions of Navy's early carrier-based nuclear bombers and a selection of Navy transport aircraft. Now, the reopening of the base also means that visitors will be able to see the Blue Angels uh, practice their flight demonstrations on selected days. That is their home base and if you're sitting there at the museum there's no missing the Blue Angels flying over your head um, as they prepare for the upcoming air show season and maybe some even some mid-season practice. But in my opinion this is one of the best aviation museums not just in the U.S. but in the world with a great, great, great collection maintained by the Department of Defense. I would say, as far as military aviation specifically, it almost rivals um, the Smithsonian collection, but it's definitely not as good as the United States Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio. So if you're in the Florida area, head up there to Pensacola and go check out this museum. 
that's the one thing that the the US does very well, isn't it? Is their aviation museums, and this is a this is a sort of classic example of that. Really, it's uh, uh, it's. Um, I mean, we, we're fairly good at museums around here, but. Uh, yeah, it's just, I, I guess it's, uh, well, aviation is so much better. We were saying, weren't we, while, while some of those clips were on, Jeff, that, I mean, actually, uh, aviation in, in the US is so much, you know, bigger than, it, than it'll ever be here, I think. You know, words mean things, Matt, and when you say that's one thing that the US does, <laughs> well... You know, I'm, I don't know. That seems like a slap in the face to me. I mean, I you haven't know. quite mastered the language, let's be honest, on that one. So. <laughs> well, that's probably true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's, uh, that's one thing we cannot do, apparently. <laughs> Neither but can we can do our darn museums. Absolutely, sure. no, indeed. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we're it proud seems of that. Like, yeah, absolutely. There's uh, some great options. I, I mean, I'm looking forward to I mean, obviously, it's my turn. I, I'm, uh, Carlos is landing literally as we speak, I believe. Um, and that's one of the things I'm, I'm hoping. Wait, hang on. Let to... me look out the window. Oh, okay. Right. Oh, yeah, of course, because you're nearby. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see him. Rubbish. Honestly. <laughs> I think he's on an American Airlines jet, I think. He's coming in on. I know. A swear word. Uh, I know. Uh, I know. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Somebody's got to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> indeed. So we've got one final piece to share with you. It is uh, all about... Now, uh, th there was... I don't know if you missed it. Perhaps you were lucky to avoid most of it, Jeff. Um, there was something called a coronation that took place here in the UK uh, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I don't know if that's... I don't understand any of that. What is that? No, what are no, you talking about? Something about a king. <laughs> and, and like sort of like you know getting oh, yeah. them some you know it was a it was a posh garden party basically I think that's essentially what it ended up being, um, <laughs> but one of the things that was really interesting of course it was hampered very sadly by the weather conditions I'm sorry to say but for the coronation mm. of their Majesties King Charles III and Queen Camilla the UK Armed Forces conducted a fly past over Buckingham Palace with aircraft from the Royal Navy British Army and the Royal Air Force although the original plan was for a six minute fly past of seventy air craft due to the cloud base being only 1500 uh, feet the uh, decision was made to only display the helicopters and the red arrows wing commander noel reese talks us through the preparation and the procedures involved in this project and this video i should say uh, is credited to the raf for his majesty king's coronation uh, we're pro providing a fitting tribute um, to this prestigious occasion, but also uh, it's our equivalent of marching troops. So it's being able to parade our aircraft in front of His Majesty the King. So the flypast planning process starts initially with a concept, an idea of what we'd like to parade in front of His Majesty the King for the flypast itself. Once you have a concept, it's a case of starting the planning process itself. I'm Wing Commander Chrissy Miller and I'm Officer Commanding 78 Squadron. The squadron consists of 200 personnel and we provide multiple services here. That includes area radar control, Northop radar, airspace management, radar analysis, but also we've just taken on the new capability which is surveillance and control resilience for UK air defence. My role in the Coronation Flypast is Flypast Coordinator from 78 Squadron Air Traffic. We have an input into the plans and the progression of the Flypast. From our point of view, we need to get all the planes from their hold areas to the Flypast and out the other side safely. 
For us at 78 Squadron, it starts with the arrivals of heads of state into North Art radar, so the radar team will be controlling those. And then we have obviously an air security plan that wraps over the entire event, and we'll be supporting that. For the flypast itself, there's 68 aircraft involved, and we will be controlling and providing the air traffic services for those aircraft departing their stations to the stacks over uh, Norfolk coast, then departing the stacks to join the flypast sequence, the flight over London, and then the egress plan to take them home to their stations after that. First off, we need to make sure that the aircraft are going to be safe, so we have put in place a restricted airspace, which is quite large. It can route from the Norfolk coast all the way through the central London and out towards the west where the airplanes egress. This needs to be done to ensure that the flypast formation is safe from other airspace users. I think it's always a really proud moment when you see something that you've planned so carefully that the public see that side of. It's, it's a real pride in our job that we can do that and still keep normal air traffic moving exactly as it needs to. Uh, and there's a real sense of pride and achievement that we can, we can make those sort of things work on a regular occasion. So there are 68 aircraft in total involved in the flypast and that's from all three services uh, and representing a real diverse range of uh, aircraft platforms. My name's Flight Lieutenant Tom Knapp. I am the formation lead element for the King's Coronation Flypast. Uh, One Flying Training School was formerly known as the Defence Helicopter Flying School and that was responsible for training both Prince William and Prince Harry for their career that they had in the military on helicopters. The planning and the step-by-step -step element for a flypast starts months out. We select the crews, we select the aircraft, there are other elements that select which fleets, which types take part, getting the crews together, the lead elements together, and then it's coming up with different aircraft at different speeds, at different heights. We've got jets flying through at 300 miles an hour. Our aircraft is flying through at 90 miles an hour, so trying to tie those timings together is quite difficult for the lead organiser to deal with. As an instructor on 60 Squadron, One Flying Training School, my role has prepared me quite well for the flypast. We teach our students, our trainees, the advanced techniques that they need to take forward to the front line. We teach them formation flying, we teach them time and target, we teach them advanced navigation day and night. So the role in which we teach here at One Flying Training School suits very nicely with regards to the King's Coronation flypast. The Eurofighter Typhoon has been the backbone of combat air since the tornado required carrying out both air-to-air -air and air-to-surface operations across the globe. During the King's Coronation, you're going to see a flypast of a breadth of Royal Air Force aircraft. The Eurofighter Typhoon will be contributing to that flypast in a specific formation for the King, and I'll be flying one of those aircraft. The flypast you'll see for the King's Coronation is a contribution of pilots and aircraft from both RF Lossmouth and RF Coningsby. We have been training from number two squadron with number one squadron up at RF Rustamouth for the past week before carrying out training with the squadrons from Coningsby, number three, number 11, number 12, number 29 and number 41 squadrons. The Eurofighter Typhoon is an incredibly safe aircraft to fly. We are also highly skilled and highly trained at flying in close formation. That isn't to say though that flying is completely without risk and it's important for every pilot today to maintain their situational awareness of the aircraft around them to make sure that we keep the flight paths as safe as possible. My role on One Squadron is to 
ensure the serviceability of all mechanical parts of the aircraft. That's things such as wheels, uh, engines and uh, flying controls. So my role is important on the day because if the weather is bad down south and they can't get their jets in the air, we'll be part of getting those jets in the air in time ready for the flyover for the King's Coronation. So day to day here at Stick Squadron we train and prepare for large force employment and composite air operations. So bringing a number of diverse aircraft together to achieve a common goal. That's exactly what we're doing for the fly pass. My feelings about being involved during the King's Coronation fly pass is predominantly excitement. These opportunities are incredibly rare and it's a great uh, moment for both myself and also all the other pilots during the fly past to showcase the skills that we have for the Royal Air Force. At the same time, I would say that any Eurofighter Typhoon that the Royal Air Force has has the ability to be in today's fly past and many of them are deployed on operations and on training exercises across the globe. So not only is it excitement, but it's a huge amount of luck for me to be in the right place at the right time to take part today. It's also particularly special for me with my brother-in-law flying in Red 6 in the Red Arrows behind about 30 seconds following on from the typhoons, so I wish him the best of luck as well. I'm Flight Lieutenant Stuart Roberts, I'm Red 7 this year with the Royal Air Force Aerobatic Team, the Red Arrows. So this year, as Red 7, it's my role to navigate the fly past on behalf of the Red Arrows, so I've been involved in the planning process and I'll be backing up the boss on the day to make sure we get the timing and the location correct. The biggest challenge on the day for us is probably the weather conditions, clearly changeable weather conditions in May in the UK, the routings we've got to take, we can encounter all sorts of weather, so making sure we've got the contingencies in place to be able to do it safely. For the Red Arrows being at the back of the formation with uh, the smoke coming out, we can encounter quite a lot of turbulence from all the aircraft in front, so it can get a little bumpy for us, especially going over the city anyway, but the training we conduct beforehand hopefully uh, allows us to uh, iron those out and keep the formation looking tidy. Following the fly past um, is when our work really begins as circus in the back. Um, we're already planning uh, how we're going to maintain the jets on the turnaround servicing at Bournemouth. Um, we need to basically make sure the jets are all serviced in time to make our next event, whether that be another air show or return into the main operating base here at RAF Waddington. So to be involved for the fly past, um, it's an absolute privilege. I mean, it's something that I've always dreamed of doing as a kid. Um, and to be able to be seen on TV flying over Buckingham Palace is going to be amazing. It's a huge privilege to be involved in the fly class for the King's Coronation. Uh, it's a very exciting time for us and for the whole country. I was lucky enough last year to be involved in the uh, fly class for Her Majesty the Queen for her Platinum Jubilee. So to get to do it again, hopefully uh, from a uh, more experienced position, will, uh, will be great fun. The challenge of providing a fly past of this scale is that there are many different aircraft with many different parameters that they fly to who have very different day-to-day -day roles. So bringing them all together over the palace is a challenge in itself. 27 Squadron is one of three Chinook Squadrons here at RF Odium. Ultimately we will go where Defence asks us to go, moving people, uh, equipment or whatever is needed really from A to B. The role I'll personally be playing is the formation lead. So if the Chinook and Puma four-ship, I will be in the lead aircraft. For the Joint Helicopter Command fly past element, there's going to be three Chinook aircraft. So one from 7 Squadron, one from 18 Squadron, and one from ourselves uh, on 27. And there'll also be a uh, Puma helicopter from uh, RF Benson taking part. So within JHC, you've got uh, Army and Navy who will also be taking part. So the Army will have Apache uh, and Wildcat. The Navy will have Merlin and Wildcat. So uh, uh, quite an array of, of rotary aircraft uh, on the day. 
The biggest risk is timing uh, and ensuring that the aircraft are ready to go for, for that sortie. Uh, if there's any delays, any faults on startup, um, then that's where we come into our own to fix the, fix the snag with the aircraft uh, and make sure it meets that set time uh, over Buckingham Palace. Training is key to all of this uh, and communication and that's why we train as hard as we do. Uh, we have a, a saying and uh, as we do across the Air Force which is train as you fight so we train as if this were on operation and therefore for the fly past on the coronation day it'll be similar. So we look to see what aircraft need to go in what order and what speeds they need to fly at and therefore that will start to bring together the order in which the aircraft are shown. Once we have the order we then start to plan the route. So it starts with all of the holds, in which case most of the large aircraft are out in the North Sea and the lighter aircraft such as the rotary wing and the historic aircraft are in the centre of London. So the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight um, is a flight that is a formed unit uh, within the Royal Air Force and we really represent uh, the historical element of the some 105 years of uh, the RAF history uh, and to do that we have 12 of some of the Air Force's most iconic aircraft. So aircraft for the flypast, um, I like to get as many uh, airborne to commemorate big occasions of state such as the, uh, the King's Coronation. So we're hoping for the Lancaster to be leading a formation of five aircraft in total. So she'll be joined hopefully by two Hurricanes and two Spitfires. So probably the, the biggest challenges we face on BBMF uh, are in the engineering enterprise uh, and probably most pivotal is the acquiring of parts. We've got five different types of aircraft in this hangar. Um, they're all over 80 years old and a lot of parts do not exist from new. So we use a lot of wartime stock uh, and that stock is depleting um, as warbird flying um, gets ever bigger around the UK. So getting the spare parts and uh, keeping the experience of working on these aeroplanes amongst my technicians are probably the biggest challenges we face on BBMF. So a very common question I guess get asked is what does it feel like to fly over a big state occasion such as the, uh, the coronation. Um, I've flown on quite a lot of similar events, the RAF Centenary, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee last year. Um, it's something you never get used to. Um, it is a lot of pressure, it's something I feel very honoured to do. Um, but it comes with a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure to make sure that on the day you do look smart uh, and you represent the service and BBMF as best you can. Finally, we have the combat air package. We have three different types. Firstly, the F-35 Lightning II, followed by Typhoon in a signature formation. And then at the back of the package, we have the Red Arrows concluding the fly past, flying in formation with the Envoy, the newest aircraft for the Royal Air Force. Uh, 32 Squadron is the RAF's uh, command support air transport fleet. Uh, so what we do is we transport uh, military commanders, high-ranking officials, uh, also ministers, cabinet officials and also occasionally the royal family. So the preparation started uh, at the very start of the year. We've also had some practice for us over the North Sea to see how the aircraft handles. This aircraft has never done this kind of stuff before. So getting the aircraft down at the right levels and making sure that it performs appropriately is, uh, is massively important to us. The 109 has a fairly unique role in the flypast on the day, so it won't be taking part in the main body of the flypast. About an hour before the flypast goes through, the, uh, the 109 will get airborne over central London and it will double-check the weather conditions and report back to the main formation. Uh, once it's conducted those activities, it will go back to Buckingham Palace and hover over the top uh, with immediate presence on board and will watch the flypast go, go through underneath them uh, so that we've got a record of, of the uh, special occasion. I'm going to feel very privileged to be sat with uh, some of the best seats in the house. 
Um, also to be leading the Red Arrows over the Palace is a, is a massive honour um, and something that we're all very much looking forward to. It's a great honour to be involved in an occasion such as this and such a prestigious event as the coronation of His Majesty the King. Um, I've been very lucky throughout my career that I've had a lot of unique experiences and opportunities um, throughout my time, uh, but none quite as big as this. So it's a real honour to be able to mission command such a large and diverse package of aircraft over the palace for His Majesty. It comes with it a lot of pressure. Um, we're very used to dealing with pressure um, throughout our day-to-day -day lives and our day-to-day -day roles in the military. And so, although it is not the easiest thing I've done, um, I'm certainly looking forward to it and looking forward to the challenge. I mean, it's such an incredible thing to, to do, isn't it? I, I was, as, as I said at the start of that, so gutted that they couldn't do their full um, programme. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a real honour, isn't it, to be able to sort of do something like that. And, uh, of course, in, in our lifetime, it's the first time that something like, like that has happened in not only in my lifetime, but, of course, in mum's lifetime, you know, because um, Queen Elizabeth II was on the throne for so long. So, you know, very, very sort of cool, a real, a real sort of change in history. And I know it's not everybody's, uh, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I must say that I do love the pomp and circumstance that we do get with, with our royal family. It, it, it makes us very British. <laughs> yes, and I love that. You know, I, I, I think it's, uh, yeah. I love all that pomp and circumstance and, yeah. you know, Me rites too. and traditions and all that kind of stuff indeed well the t we've, we've overrun ever so slightly i'm sorry to say um so it is time for us to start wrapping up uh jeff i don't know what to say thank you so very much for uh, <laughs> he's looking at his watch uh so very much for joining me at the last minute to sort of uh, uh to get me out of the hole that i suddenly found myself in where i was essentially going to be presenting the show on my own so eternally grateful that you were able to join us and uh yeah have you got anything uh, planned uh from uh, from well, uh, after this going anywhere nice? it was it was i'm so happy that you you rang me up and asked me to be a host uh with you today on the show it was all my pleasure and the only thing that disappoints me a bit is well you know i can i can do with not seeing nev and, oh <laughs> and uh but carlos i was really disappointed that i was really looking forward to see seeing oh. carlos on the show today and, oh uh, well, I'm sort of very, very sorry to hear that. I mean, of course, um, I don't think he's a million miles away from you, so uh, there might be a little meet-up you could go and... Uh, oh, that's yeah. right. <laughs> that's right. I will see him today, won't Lovely. I? Do I get the Oscar for that? Thank Just you. A, yeah. you do. That's a very good actor. <laughs> thank you. Thank uh, you very much. So in about two hours or, or so, I will uh, see uh, Carlos in person at the, uh, the meet-up that I'm going to tell you about right now at uh, Noda brewing company a north end location and by the way noda is, stands for north davidson yeah. and thank you john for that by the way <laughs> yeah, uh, we were looking that up uh, in the background Indeed. and uh, so it's the ptuk uh, most importantly and with a little apg thrown in <laughs> for good measure meet up with carlos armando steph and Captain Jeff. Oh wow! And and you, whoever is listening and joins us today, at the Noda Brewing Company, as I mentioned, North End at six o'clock, six p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So 
look forward to seeing you if you're in the area. Yes, indeed. Unfortunately, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, I'm afraid you oh, missed yeah. it. Well, it's, it's been because it's released missed on it. Sunday. Uh, you but, should have uh, been listening live. <laughs> well, quite absolutely. Uh, but no, so, sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sure there'll be lots of photos uh, doing the rounds as soon as you, uh, you as soon as you get there. But uh, I hope you have a, a sort of a great. Uh, great uh, couple of days i think you've got uh, i think there's uh, quite a lot on carlos's itinerary while he's out there as i say and i'm sure there'll be lots of bits and pieces uh, there uh, my thanks as always to the ledger that is captain jeff for, for get, as I say, getting me out of a muddle at the last minute my big thanks to both john and nick who put an awful lot of work in the background because without them there really would have been no show this week because i didn't have time to do the show notes as well so thank you very much to all of them thank you to nev and to armando who joined us earlier on of course armando will be there at the meetup as well that's going to be very exciting nev obviously for kindly sending us that little video at the beginning i'm sure there'll be a little rant uh, about his uh, flying experience uh, to look forward to on his return uh, but that is pretty much it for episode uh, i want to say four five six yes that's right uh, episode four five six uh, thank you very much to everyone who's joined us uh, and uh, take care everyone we'll see you next week bye bye now 